らせがあんたに任せた僕らの未来さあ皆さんご一緒にパーッと踊りましょうハロー and welcome to WGTC Radio, the official podcast of entertainment website We Got This Covered. I'm Jonathan Lack. And I'm Sean Chapman. And we are here to talk about Persona 4, the Japanese role playing game, or JRPG, that Sean and I are both madly, head over heels, obsessively, probably dangerously in love with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the, our end of the year <laughs> podcast、uh, for the end of last year, I gave it my secret top, actual zero, real best game of the year spot. Because I played the original version, which came out in 2008. Yes. A little bit of history. Persona 4, it's the fourth game in the Shin Megami Tensei Persona series,、uh, sort of sub series, now it's really、yeah. its own big series.、Yeah. Uh, in Japan, again, they're JRPGs. Persona 4 is the latest one, came out in 2008 on the PlayStation 2. And、uh, that's the version Sean played first.、Yeah. But really, what we're talking about and why it is still somewhat relevant for this podcast, because we talk about games, is in November last year, Uh, Persona 4 The Golden, which is the enhanced HD remake, came out for the PlayStation Vita console.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, we have both just finished playing it.、Yeah. And so we both love this game so much. We were very intent. If we were going to play the whole thing again, we definitely had to do a podcast about it. Yeah, yeah, because this is definitely a game worth talking about. Yes. So if you do not play Persona 4, if you know nothing about it, look it up. And maybe we'll give you some information here. And, and definitely, so that, you know, before we get into all the spoilers, tell you a little bit about it so you can know whether or not you want to go play it. Because you really should. It's very good. <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of、yeah. an understatement. And you can find it, yeah, it's, it's a huge understatement. You can find it in several different versions now. So、um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Basically, this podcast, we don't know how long it's going to be. We're anticipating it, maybe multiple parts. We'll put them all out on the same day. Don't worry, we're not going to jiff you and go for like a month just talking、yeah. about Persona 4. As much as we would want to do that. Yes, as much as we would want to do that, that it is not called Persona Radio, it's WGTC Radio. So anyway. We, we could change it. We could just jump ship, make Persona Radio. In the future, sometime. Yeah. Anyway, well, once Persona 5 comes out, we'll just abandon all hope of. Yeah. Yeah.、Oh, Jesus. Anyway, but we will be back next week, of course, with other topics, movie related, gaming related, whatever's going on. We'll have a, I'll have a big announcement yeah, next week, kind of a cool show talking about something cool that's going on. We'll get to that next week. Like I said, this week we're talking all about Persona 4. If you've heard our podcasts on, say, The Dark Knight Rises, The Hobbit, Amazing Spider Man, where we just take, in that case, a movie and dissect it and talk about it. That's basically what we're going to be doing for Persona 4, but this time for a game. Yes, and a long game. And we a have, very long game. Yes. We apologize for the sirens. For some reason in Boulder in the last week, there have been sirens every five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Sort of constant. Yeah. I, those, those damn college kids. Yeah. Get off our lawn. Anyway,、um, we do not have a lawn. That would be、no. very difficult to fit one. That's a bit extravagant for us. Yes. <laughs> in any case. So, we're going to talk about Persona 4. So, Sean, let's do a little back history here without getting into sort of the, in, the gameplay mechanics and the story mechanics because those are all very complicated. Yeah. In a general sense, what is Persona 4? Where does it come from? Oh, jeez. This is, this, this is the problem with this podcast, is it, is it is going to be hard to talk about this game in brief. But, okay, so Persona 4, as we said before, it is. Sort of part of a sub series from the Shin Megami Tensei main series, which is a very, very long standing JRPG 
run of games from the company Atlas in Japan. And it's sort of very acclaimed. A lot of the earlier games didn't come out over here, but, you know, they have sort of like a very dedicated fan base. And starting with Persona 3 and then Persona 4, those two games in particular were, were just, they're actually phenomenal games, and they became very popular over here in, in like sort of a dedicated audience. And I think they sort of revitalized a lot of interest in the JRPG genre. But So Persona 4 is basically just sort of the gist of it is you are this transfer student moves to this town called Inaba where there's crazy shit going on, uh, bodies are turning up and nobody sort of knows how they're being killed. And while that is going on, you discover you have this ability to enter a TV world. And this, like, shit starts sounding crazy if you just start to try to explain it, but just roll with it. You have the ability to enter the TV world, and as you do that, you discover you have this other ability called Persona, which is where the name of the series comes from, which is sort of, think of it as you're basically able to summon what is more or less a demon, but it's sort of this facet of yourself that you bring out as a sort of manifested monster and then that you can, can use to fight other monsters. Yeah, that's sort of the battle system side of it. Yeah. So you, in the TV world, you run through sort of JRPG dungeons, as you understand yeah. them. Persona has its own spin on it, but that's the gist of it. You have your basic fighting system, which is um, familiar to fans of JRPG, but again, yeah, very, it's turn-based. But very you know, cool Persona twist on yeah. it. Very unique. And then, you know, back in the real world is sort of where all the story stuff happens. You, you do these things called social links, which is where you basically hang out with friends and trigger these event scenes. And as you go along, you do your social links. That influences your progression in the dungeon world yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. And so that's sort of the basic gist of it. It's a very long JRPG. It takes, in the golden version, about 70 to 80 hours to complete yeah, it took one time hours, And I did, like, everything. Yeah. And I, it took me 74 and uh, that was my first time through. Sean's first time through when he played it on the PlayStation 2 took a little longer because they've, they've cleaned some stuff up in the yeah. Golden that allows you to progress a little faster. And uh, even though they've added a shit ton of stuff. And so your initial playthrough on your PlayStation 2 file was, was 90... around 90 hours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a long game, but it's really fucking good. And, yeah. and, you know, if you like JRPGs, or even if you don't, and you feel like you wish you could, but there just hasn't been one for you recently, play Persona 4. Chances yeah. are, you will fucking love it. I mean, I should say that when I had, when I did decide to play Persona 4 initially, I think I talked about this on the end of year podcast, but I had sort of jumped ship on JRPGs for a really long time at that point. Like, and most of my experience with JRPGs is primarily just the Final Fantasy series where I have a lot of issues with how they handle sort of story and plot stuff and just, like, the style of the modern Final Fantasy games. And then also, like, most JRPGs are so mired in, like, sticking to these very cliche, overdone story things and mechanical things in terms of gameplay that I kind of had given up on the genre. But I sort of heard so much good stuff about Persona 4 that I decided to play it. And, you know, yeah. Even if you are a person who kind of has either has never played a JRPG before or who has and sort of drifted away from that genre, I think Persona 4 is sort of the height of what a JRPG can be to me. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, I'd definitely it, give it a try. And it innovates, which is something many JRPGs yeah. have not done. Maybe, you know, the Final Fantasy series has certainly innovated aesthetically with beautiful music, beautiful graphics, yeah. all those sorts of things, but it has not... And it's tried to innovate gameplay-wise, but poorly sometimes. Yeah. Persona 4 is very much taking... And, and stylistically, I think the, the Final Fantasy games have just been... They have not changed since Final Fantasy 7. Yeah. So anyway, that's a whole other discussion. But we're just sort of putting this in context. So how you can play Persona 4 if you would like to is... you know it is It was originally a PlayStation 2 game. You can still get... You can still buy it brand new because yeah. it's a pretty recent game, 2008. It came in well into the PS3's life cycle. Yeah. 
And so you can go buy Persona 2 played on your PlayStation 2 if you still have it. If you don't want to buy a Vita, you don't want to make that investment, which I can understand, it's a lot of money, um, you know, you can still play it that way. It's still yeah. a great game that way, obviously. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But if you have a Vita, or if you are thinking of getting a Vita, or if you're not thinking of getting a Vita but think you might want to because Persona 4 sounds so good, Persona 4 The Golden, the enhanced HD remake, is fucking phenomenal and is as clear an example as I think there has ever been of a system seller. In the in, in this case, the kind of thing where you would buy a system just to play that game. Yeah. And the Vita, Sean, I'm going to ask you this question, was it worth buying a PlayStation Vita and all the stuff around it just to play Persona 4 Golden? I would say so, yeah. Yes. I mean, they've <laughs> probably spent more money on less time enjoyed than 80 hours. Like, that's, yeah. that is a significant amount of entertainment. Yes, and and the Vita, as we, we were thinking actually about when we talked about Persona 4 Golden, maybe talking about the Vita too. No time for that. Yeah. In a, in a future episode, I hope we can because it's a really good system, and I think we've had time to explore it some more. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean that's that's a great investment if you are thinking you like portable gaming or in the market for a new system. 3DS has you down. Vita is a really good investment, mainly for Persona 4 the Golden because that yeah. is a fucking phenomenal game, and you can play every other single Persona game on there if you want. Yeah. So I should also say, you know, if you have already played vanilla Persona 4 on the PS2, Persona 4 The Golden is not just an HD remake. I think we'll probably get into that a little more later. But yeah, yeah. yeah that's it's definitely worth playing again in the golden version. There is a significant amount of content added and sort of streamlining done to yeah. make it a much more enjoyable game. Yes. So and that is the version we'll be talking about here. We're coming to it from, and I think this is good for this podcast, two different angles. Sean yeah. has played both Vanilla Persona 4 and Golden. I've only played Golden, and uh, so that's kind of, we have these different perspectives, but we will be talking about sort of, you know, textually, the Golden version of it. So if you have not played the Golden, and you've just played like Vanilla before, you'll be able to follow along. We'll make sure we, we talk about stuff that's just Golden. Yeah. Centric. But, I mean, let's go over really quickly. We will talk mainly about the golden changes as they come up in the discussion. But really quickly, Sean, you can't do this really quickly. But let's yeah. talk about what did they change in the golden in a sort of broader sense, I okay. guess. Okay. The, the major changes are, I think, uh, first of all, you know, obviously, uh, aesthetically, they, they cleaned up the graphics a lot. They added a lot of sort of like, it's like it's just like higher resolution textures. You know, there's some anti-aliasing, so you don't get like the really nasty, jagged, of like effect that PS2 graphics have, you almost never models. see those at all. Yeah, you don't really see those. I think the game looks great in that sense. They also added a lot of sort of like, uh, like just like you know, lighting effects on a lot of the spells and stuff like that. So the game just looks a lot better. It's in widescreen now. Yeah, the game the game is right. I don't even think about that because yeah. I think about the game just being in widescreen, even though it was full screen, obviously for the PS2. And then past just sort of that, they added uh, the major content that they added are two new social links: the Adachi and Marie social links, which are really, really well done in sort of major parts of the game. And Adachi fleshes out sort of existing parts of the story, but Marie is a whole yeah, new... Marie is a brand new character who ties into stuff from the original game that isn't that doesn't go entirely explained. Yeah. So yeah, and that like and that is not just sort of like tacked on content. That is like really major content. Then there's an entire new dungeon attached to the Marie character. And then the other like most significant thing is that the original game you like it ends in uh, at the end of December, kind of like you you play to the end of December, and then it skips to the like middle of March when the character is going to leave and whatever. And and in the golden version, they add in you can play through the entire month of January and like the first like half of February. For not those not in the know, 
Persona exists on a day-to-day system. There's yeah, a time yeah. management game system. We'll talk about it later. But basically, you start in March. You play every day from March to when the game ends. Yeah, if you, yeah, you play sort of throughout the entire year. Yeah. So it's like it has a sort of time-based system. And they add in you play through the entirety of January, the first half of February, which is where the extra dungeon takes place. And that's at least a good ten hours new content. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, and it's and it's and all of the new stuff added in the golden is not just tacked on sort of stuff. It is fully integrated. It is. Like, if you didn't, most of it, if you did not know that this was, like, an enhanced version of an already existing game, you would not assume it was added in. No. Like, I, I think you can attest to that. Yeah, there were only one or two instances where I could spot new stuff was added, and that was not because of any production efficiencies. It was just like, all right, the characters are starting a rock band. That didn't happen in the original. Yeah. It, it's seamless, but it's like, that's the kind of thing you go back and add because you know these characters, you know their personalities, and that's just a fun new thing to do. But otherwise, no, it's like, I would off, I would often ask Sean, I'm like, or I would say something to Sean, like, this part's great, what was it like in the original? And he'd be like, it wasn't in the original. It's, what are you talking about? You can fucking go plant shit with Nanako. Yeah. That's I think, crazy talk. Yeah, I know, before you actually bought your Vita and, and stuff, I would be telling you about all this stuff, and you're like, what are you talking about? I think that's what made you get the Vita, was that... Yeah, it was the, I quickly realized that there was a lot more to the Golden version than I originally suspected. Like, or even than they've advertised, because yeah. it's hard to advertise. Yeah, it, it, like, it is... It is impossible to find a comprehensive list of changes for the Golden, which really frustrated me before I got it, and then now that I've played it, I understand why there's not a comprehensive list, because if I tried to make a comprehensive list, I I would fail. Like, there's no way you can put everything in there. Basically, everything about the game has been touched up, polished, perfected, or expanded upon in some way. Yeah, I mean, there's just a bunch of really little things, too, like minor character introductions and, like, little tiny scenes that they just sort of throw in there that... They're just, like, things that you would never expect a, a remake of a game to do. Like, yeah. there's just, like, across-the-board, really intricate, in-depth, small alterations to improve things. Yeah. And That'd nearly be- everything they do is an improvement. There are, like, one or two things that we have quibbles on that we'll probably get to, but... And those are exceedingly minor. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, yeah. you know, it's not like they, you know, changed... It's not like, you know, all of a sudden someone goes, like, No! Like, yeah. George Lucas saying it. It's yeah. not like that. There are AT-AT walkers in Nineveh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, that's really cool. There's a bunch of new scenes sprinkled throughout, and when I yeah. say scenes, I mean, like, hour-long cutscenes, which are great. Yeah, yeah, big, long sort of events where you just yeah, sort yeah. of hang out with the characters. Like you said, one of them is you start a band with everybody. Yeah, which yeah, is there are a bunch great. And, like uh, five. and there's probably twice as much, if not more, animated scenes. Yeah, yeah, they add a lot of animated cutscenes, and they and the quality of the animated cutscenes is definitely improved as well. Not yeah. to say that they were bad in the original, but they definitely they feel a lot more fluid and and seeing them in well HD, animated. they yeah. look beautiful. Yeah. Vita screen is great. Um, yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it. There's obviously some new music and stuff, although really the only thing that was not changed or touched up is some of the original music is still just that music because it was yeah. fucking great. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you could even get an argument of it might even sound better in this version. Who knows? So yeah. it's just it's a really, really great remake. You get, again, even if you've played the original several times, you get more than your money's worth out of the Golden. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, I only finished playing the original version like five months ago Yeah, when I started playing this version. It's like I almost never can replay a game that quickly back-to-back, but there's so much new content in the Golden that it almost didn't feel like I was just playing the same game. Yeah. So I think that's an overview. That's the version we'll be talking about, and I think if all that intrigues you, go play the game. Spend your 80 hours on it. When you're done, come back and listen to this, because as of now, we're going to get into spoilers, and I this is this is not a game that is 
plot heavy in the way that spoilers will ruin everything for you. Yeah. But I I would rather not have it spoiled. That's the yeah. kind of this kind of game. It's like the, some of the the big moments are moments you want to experience. So don't listen to this if you haven't played the game. Come back when you have, and uh, we're gonna spoil stuff. Yeah. And so we're, we're going to try our best to do this podcast. Yes. This is it's gonna be tough to organize. So. We're going to get into spoiler stuff now. I mean, we're not going to explicitly just start by revealing the end, but spoilers may come up past this point. So, yeah, anyway. Adachi's Narakami's father. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be crazy. Anyway, so I guess I want to keep it still broad for just a minute here, yeah. because I think where I kind of want to start this now in-depth discussion is just saying, I think why we both really, really love this game, and I think the thing that sums it up for me is that as you may know if you've listened to this podcast, or as Sean knows from being my friend for many years, I am not very good at finishing games. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. <laughs> Go back to whatever podcast where we started talking about Red Dead Redemption. Two for, years after it came out? Yeah. Because I got Red Dead Redemption a couple months after it came out. It took me two years to finish, off and on. Any game that's more than like just a Halo kind of campaign where you sit down, you play it over 10, 12 hours, I'm not, I just, I don't know, my attention span isn't there, I, I lose interest, something like that. Persona 4, my final finish time was like 74 and a half hours, and I beat it in exactly one month. And I think to me, that speaks more than anything else about how invested I was in this game. And I think by the time I reached the end, I just... I was kind of thinking this a lot long of the way through, but there was just this, once you get to the end, and you realize, you know, once Nanako has been kidnapped... Or once you have to go get Adachi out of the dungeon. Or when Marie, you have to find her again and, and, you know, help her deal with her suicidal impulses. Or you have to go do the true ending and everything comes together. Just the level of emotional investment I have in Persona 4 was just off the charts. It was just something where I loved these characters so much. And because of all the gameplay mechanics on both sides of the worlds and everything you do, everything is about investing you in these people and this world and this story. And... And I just fucking love that. And I think just how much I cared about this game and was so sad when I finished it and felt so kind of hollow and empty and didn't know what to do for a couple of days, gameplay-wise. Like, yeah. I have other stuff in my life. But, you know, when it comes to games, it was just like... You you told me, Sean, on our end of your podcast that Persona 4 is a game that changes you. Yeah. That is true. That is yeah. absolutely true. I am a different gamer than I was when I started playing Persona 4. Radically, it's like that's... I will judge every game I play from now on differently because it's like there's just something that game gave me that no other game, with the possible exception of Mass Effect 2, which also creates this very heavy level of emotional investment by the end. But that's in part because you've played two games. Persona 4 is just one massive game that is just incredible. And like my my capacity for sitting through cutscenes. I hate cutscenes. I've talked about that before. But Persona 4, fuck it. They want to do two-hour ski trip? I'll watch that. It's great. Fuck yeah. Yeah, fuck yeah. I'll be excited for that. So I just... Yeah, I mean, in a, in a broad sense, I think you can bring all this stuff together and just say, these are the things Persona 4 does well, and this is why I fucking fell in love with this game. And that's even before you get into the production credits of it, where the just gorgeous graphics and um, unbelievable music and just so much, just a fun fighting system. It's great on every level. And yeah. that's why I think it's, it is the best game I have ever played. And that's the point I want to start from. So, so what yeah. about you? So for me, I mean, basically... Like, with my relationship with Persona 4 is a little more complicated because I'm a lot more involved with the series at this point than you are. Yeah. Like, you know, I've played, I played Persona 4, the original, then I played Persona 3, then I played Persona 4 Arena, which is sort of like the sequel to Persona 4, and now I've played Persona 4 The Golden, and then I'm going back and playing the, uh, the older games. But with Persona 4 in particular, I think what draws me to that game is 
that, that stands out from the other Persona games is that it is... The characters are so well-drawn and so likable that what the thing I love about that game is just hanging out with all those characters. And they do... And they have just like, you know, like you said, with the ski trip, they have these long just scenes that you just spend with these characters just hanging out. That has almost nothing to do with, like, the overarching plot. Like, the overarching plot of this game is really well done, but this is not the most important part of the game. The most important part of the game, to me, is definitely the characters and just spending time with them. And then just, like, something that it shares in common with Persona 3 is, I think, the system of you spending a year in this game and just going day-to-day living this character's life just makes the game more immersive than any other game I've ever played, even though it's not, you know, it doesn't go for this whole, like, half-life, like, first-person, we-never-break-perspective kind of thing. You just live this character's life, living with all of these other characters in this world, trying to deal with these problems, and there's no sort of break from that. You just go, and you're in this world. That experience, I think, is something that no other game has ever provided for me, and that's why I love these games in particular, is that system and what that does to the game, I think, is something that if it doesn't would not automatically make a game good. I think it's something that would be very difficult to pull off, but in both Persona 3 and Persona 4, they nail it perfectly, and you just like sort of live this life as this other character, and it's an experience that only a video game could ever provide you. Yeah. So, those are sort of broad thoughts. I feel like we have to pick a topic now. Yeah, yeah. Do we want to go into the story first, the gameplay, the mechanics, the characters? What do we want to I do? I think we should start off with the story setup, yes. because if we don't do that, nothing else makes sense. Yeah, that'll provide context. We can talk about how we think it all goes. So the story. You get to Inaba. You are a yeah. transfer student. Your parents fucking abandoned you, went off to another country. But yeah. Naru- Narukami, the main character... Yeah, we, we should say you're able to name the main character whatever you want, but the canonical name for the character and what we both named him was uh, you, Narukami. Because it's so, a great fucking name. Yeah, yeah. so like that's what he's called in the anime adaptation in the uh, Persona 4 arena. Yeah. So we're, we're just going to refer to the protagonist as Narukami. Yes. So, you know, Narukami takes on stride because he's a cool dude. He comes to Inaba. He's moved in with his uncle Dojima. Yeah. And his cousin, Nanako, who's yes. younger, and she says, Big bro, a lot. Yeah. Poor Nanako. <laughs> Poor Nanako. We'll get into that later. Yeah. Anyway, you move with your uncle. Dojima is a, a detective with the local police station. And, you know, you start making some friends. But almost as soon as you get to Inaba, bodies are being strung up on telephone poles. And yeah. you don't know why. Yeah, there's... Yeah, dead bodies are just showing up, and nobody, like, it's just a mysterious cause of death. They come after the fog comes at night, yes. and they just show up, and everybody's terrified. Yes. This fog has become a troublesome thing in Inaba. It's fairly new development, but it's very scary to everyone, because like, fog can be kind of creepy if it lasts for days at a time. It's very fucked up by the yeah. end of the game. <laughs> yeah. So, one day by chance, Narukami puts his hand in the TV. Yeah, well, so back up a little bit. Okay. What happens is that one of the, you know, you make friends with uh, three characters, Yosuke, Chie, and Yukiko, and Chie tells you this rumor. God, I'm forgetting heard. stuff already. Yeah, this yeah. is crazy. This is what's hard to talk about this yeah, game, yeah. is that it is so, it, it is such an intricate plot because it's such a long yeah, game yeah. that it's very hard to just talk about it. But Chie tells you this rumor about something called the Midnight Channel, where if on a rainy night at midnight, 
if you look at a turned-off TV, it will turn on by itself and show you an image of your uh, soulmate, basically, is what the rumor is. So you decide, everyone decides they're going to do that, and that night you see, a, like, this foggy image of a person on the TV, and then Narukami gets this, like, headache or whatever, and this crazy voice is all like, Thou art I, and I am thou. And he just decides to stick his hand into a TV, because he's got persona. Yeah. And at first this is very creepy, because you should not be able to stick your hand into a TV. Yeah, it like phases through the TV, there's like little... Like water effects. almost, yeah. yeah. It's not like he just punches the TV. <laughs> oh, that would be kind of great. Yeah. Just like, BAM! <laughs> Fuck you, Midnight Channel. <laughs> That's how you beat the game. Yeah. Really early on. Anyway, so... When... I don't remember the exact turn of events in the beginning of the game. When do they actually finally go to Juness and go into the TV? Okay, so what happens is the first body that turns up is a announcer called Mayumi Yamano. And so she turns up dead. And then about a week later, this other character that you've met, who's Yosuke's sort of, you know, he's got the hots for, is this girl called Saki Kunishi. And she is the one who discovers Mayumi's body, and then she also turns up dead. And that's what prompts Yosuke to uh, go into the TV world to actually, like, figure shit out. Like, they fall into the TV world before that because uh, Narukami tells them about his uh, sticking his hand through the TV, but nothing sort of happens the first time they go in. So it's after Saki dies, Yosuke decides everybody's going to go in. We need to... This obviously has, like, these crazy fucking murders that nobody can explain obviously has something to do with this mysterious TV world that we discovered. So they all decide to jump in. They meet a little mascot dude named Teddy that we'll talk about later. That's a whole discussion. And... That's when they, they discover, uh, they encounter the shadows for the first time, and Narukami awakens to his persona ability and summons his persona and kicks some fucking ass. Persona! Yeah, the, the, the yeah. animated cutscene where he awakens to his persona. Really fucking awesome. Yes. It's also awesome in Persona 3, but yeah. in Persona 4, I just the pacing of it is like, it's fucking great. Yeah, yeah. It, there's, there is some wailing guitar in that yeah. scene. Oh, yeah. Shoji Meguro, he knows how to wail a guitar. Yeah. Anyway, so shadows, we should mention, are the, you know, sort of enemies in the TV world. Yeah. And you find out later they're basically projections of human subconscious yeah, or the, unconscious. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're repressed human thoughts get yes, a physical yes. form in the TV world. And you fight them. Yes, with, with repressed human thoughts that you have accepted given physical form called personas. It makes sense when you play the game. Kind, um, of. kind of, yeah. Anyway, so... Anyway, uh, you know, so the first thing that happens basically once this all... You know, once you kind of get into the rhythms is... First, Yukiko gets kidnapped. Yeah. And then you and Shie and Yosuke go in, and Shie runs off, and you have to go rescue her. Yeah. Sort of. Because, and then this is the first time you sort of get this formulaic, um, and formulaic in a good sense. I'm just saying this yeah. is the formula that it follows, is that um, Shie basically meets her own shadow. Yeah. And her shadow is like all of her, again, repressed urges and desires and thoughts given form. It's all sort of her flaws and character yeah, problems and, and and the yeah the specific shadow forms of other people that come out when you enter the TV world they sort of prey on that person's like own like insecurities yes. and they they really they they sort of inhabit them and exaggerate them and try to get the other person to deny the existence of their shadow self to sort of deny the existence of their own sort of darker nature and that gives the shadow power and the shadow the other shadow self's goal is basically just to try to kill they're real person so they can sort of replace them in a sense and become whole. Yes. And so you have to stop that from happening by... So what will happen is, like, for instance, in this first case, Chie says, you're not me, yeah, because she yeah. cannot accept this shadow, and then you have to fight that fucking shadow. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and you beat the shit out of it, and you kill it, and then Shie can accept it. Yeah, and then once you accept your shadow, it turns into your persona. And then you have the persona ability, not the ability to have multiple personas, but you have one persona, yeah. and it's usually pretty kick-ass. Yeah, yeah. The, eventually Chie gets a persona that just has a Darth Maul lightsaber. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty awesome. Yep. And I should say, you've already done this with Yosuke earlier on. It's not a big, like, you have to go through the dungeon, but this happens with him. Yeah. That's kind of your first big fight. Um, so Yosuke's already got his persona, now she has her persona, then you go through the dungeon rescue, Yukiko, she gets her persona, and you're sort of building your team, yeah. that's your initial yeah, team, the, those yeah, four. Yeah, in the first section of the game is basically that, you yeah. are going into these dungeons after people are thrown into the TV, they show up on the Midnight Channel, you go and try to save them, and then most of the people you save then end up being your teammates. Yes, you have, you know, first, after you get Yukiko, then is Kanji, I believe. Yeah. And sort of, you know, Kanji has these struggles with sexuality and things that emerge in the TV world. Obviously, we'll go in depth on all these characters yeah. later. Then is Risei, who's this pop idol who moves to Inaba, who um, has a lot of issues. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Risei. Anyway, you save Risei, you get her on your team. You've got Naoto, the boy detective. But in the middle of all that, before you get Naoto, you have sort of your first... This is sort of where the game takes its first turning point, yeah. which is in Mr. Morooka, your teacher, King Moron, as they call him in the yeah. English localization, dies, and he's strung up on a TV pole, kind of like the other murders. He's on a water tower. Oh, he's on a water tower. There, there are That's a lot true. of hints that yes, this yes. murder may not be the other murders. Uh-huh. Yeah. It may be some sort of a copycat killer. Yes. So, you go into the TV... And you find this boy, Mitsuo, who's a classmate of yours. Yeah. And uh, he, you, turns out he must be the killer. And you take he's, him back. He's definitely, yeah, the, def- the game definitely ends there. He is definitely the killer. That's it. The game's over after you captured Mitsuo. Okay, so let's, let's back up. The characters in Persona 4, bless their hearts, they're trying to do, you know, they're trying to save, you know, but they're saving all these people. But they're horrible detectives. Yeah, I mean, they're all 15 or 16 years yeah. old. So they're not, they are not the brightest, you know, tools in the shed. Yeah. So, sort of, you try to do all this detective work, but you're pretty bad at it, and that leads you to think Mitsuo must be the real killer. He's obviously not. Yeah. It's obviously a copycat killer, because very little about Morooka's death seems similar to the other ones, except on the very, very, very surface. Yeah, there is a body that is hanging from something that is very, very high up, and that that is literally the only similarity. Yeah. So anyway... Turns out, finally, that Mitsuo is not the killer because then someone else gets taken into the dungeon. Yes, it's Naoto. Naoto, who is fucking awesome. She's a he, at first. You think it's a he. She's come. He, you don't think Yeah, it's you a, don't think it's a You're he. supposed to think that Naoto's a guy. Naoto's not a guy. It's no. pretty obvious. In, in the English version. In, in the yeah. Japanese version, it's a little more androgynous. That's a little easier to pull off in Japanese. Yeah. Um, in English, Naoto has the sexiest voice in the world. Okay, yeah. I just want to point that out. Okay. We'll get into that later. Sure. That'll that'll be its whole own section. Now to you, voice. You agree with me. I know I agree <laughs> with you, but it's just like, I don't know. You don't have to bring it up in like this really creepy way. Okay. Anyway, you rescue Nato. She, he has come to Inaba to help the police department because he, she is a... Just she. She, okay. Nato is just a she. Nato is not transgendered. No, but she's pretending to be a he because she's worried about sexism in the police department, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Anyway, Nato is like this, you know, wonderful detective that's come to help the police department. And once you get her on the team, she finally kicks some sense in you. It's like, no, it was a copycat murder. Fucking Duh. obvious. Yeah, and she kind of proves it by getting herself sucked to the TV, and you enter sort of the next section of the game where this happens a few more times. You've pretty much got your whole team at this point, though. Yeah, yeah, you do. You do, yeah. And even though you rescue some more people, obviously they do not awaken to their personas. Yeah. And uh, 
sort of, you know, we're describing all this. This happens over, you know, hours and hours and hours, dozens of hours in the game. It's just the, the plot, again, because it's a character-focused game, we're just sort of going over the broad specifics of the yeah. mystery. And then uh, the real turning point comes when Dojima accuses you, maybe you're the killer. Yeah, because you you keep on just, like, going out at night. You're just, like, gone for whole days and then just come home beaten, battered, and just pass out on the couch. It's like you're taking five different jobs, but you, nobody has any idea what you're doing with all the money. Yeah. And so, eventually, Dojima, and then you get this creepy letter in the mail, and Dojima's like, eh... You're probably involved in all this shit. Also, this all happened literally the day you came to town. Yeah. So, so he locks kind of a good suspect, honestly. So he locks you up in the in the police precincts. Not not because he hates you or he's just because he, he loves you. He yeah, wants, he loves he you. Wants, yeah. yeah, he cares about you. He wants to make sure you're not in some really deep shit. Yes, Dojima's a good you're guy. In some really deep shit. You are. I, Dojima is a good man. But anyway, the same night that happens, Nanako gets kidnapped, your your cousin. Yeah. And it's a fucking sad, sad, depressing part of the game. Yeah. Because she goes to heaven, and then you have to go rescue her from heaven. Yeah. 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 We'll get into the Nanako stuff. Yeah. But anyway, rescuing Nanako also means you capture who you think is the culprit at this point, Taro Namatame. What is Namatame's role in all this, Sean? Uh, Namatame was, he was the... uh, he was like had an affair with Mayumi Yamano, so he was a suspect at first. But he is also one of the other people who has the ability to enter TVs without having a persona, and he's been throwing people into TVs that just show up on the Midnight Channel. So like whenever someone shows up on the Midnight Channel, he chucks them into the tube, starts with Yukiko, goes on with that. So the people you've been saving have been thrown in by Namatame because he sort of has this like Messiah Savior complex thing. Yes, and at this point in the game, once you once all this stuff is, but he's kind of, definitely he's definitely the culprit. There's definitely nothing beyond Namatame. There's no, no way. This is definitely where the game ends. And that's what leads you to believe maybe you should just throw him into the TV and kill him and end this and get the bad ending, which is fucking awesome. Yeah, in Persona you can get in Persona Four you can get a bad ending, the good ending, and then the true ending. So and there's also another bad ending exclusive to Persona Four: The Golden that is yes. also really awesome. So in the in early December, once you've rescued Nanako, you can. Accident, it'll probably be an accident. You probably shouldn't do this intentionally. Get the bad ending where you throw Taro Namatame into the TV. No, you do that intentionally. You throw his ass into that fucking TV. Yes. You kill him, Nanako dies, and then you leave, and the town is covered in fog forever, and all of humanity will die. Yeah, yeah, you will will be consumed by the Hollow Forest, and humanity will be destroyed, and we will all turn into shadows. And it'll actually be pretty awesome because all of our desires will be fulfilled, but. We don't want that to happen for some reason. Get into that. All right. So, anyway, Sean, uh, what do we want to say about this part of the game? It's pretty cool that you can you can just fuck yourself over. In yeah, part. yeah. If you, like, and there has to because because you actually had this experience that I didn't I, I didn't have this when Tell I played me. the game. Can I explain like, this? Yeah, yeah. You go ahead. Your experience with the bad ending. Yeah, there are two ways to get the bad ending at this point. One is you throw Teranamatame into the TV, which is the right way to get the bad ending. Yeah, and then you get a really bad ending where yeah. he dies. You are murderers. Yeah, you get a dark fucking ending. Nanako's dead. Dojima gives you like this really dark speech where he sort of hints at the fact that you know that he knows that you threw Namatame into the TV, but he's kind of okay with it on like this sort of like vigilante level. Yeah. So it's just fucking bleak. Or you can do every single dialogue option in that scene right until the very last one, and then technically you still did everything right, but for, and Nanako lives, but for some reason the game just ends. 
And that's what I got the first time because I did not have a fact open to know every because single... Because you didn't... Like, I had never had this experience because every single time I was presented the option of calm the hell down! I always picked calm the hell down because people needed to calm the hell down! I don't know why you didn't pick that one. Well, anyway, I picked something else, got the bad ending, I was really confused, went back, reloaded it, had to do all that stuff again, and got it right this time. But anyway, so yeah, and then the game just continues from there. You just needed to calm the hell down. Yeah, that bad ending is a really weird one, because Namatame lives, Nanako lives, but then you get this scene, with that scene you were talking about with Dojima, it's different where Dojima's like asking you, like, well, I guess, he's like, it's kind of this little speech about how things don't feel resolved, and then he's like, do you have any regrets? And you can say yes or no. And you're like, like, yeah, I should have had a fac open so I could have gone down the good end path. That's what I said. And then he's like, yeah, Nanako's still in the hospital. They don't know when she'll wake up. And then he's like, you know, but she'll be okay. But you're also also watching a news report where Namatame has confessed to throwing people into the TVs or the kidnappings, but not to the first two murders. And that's sort of left up in the air. And then you leave town and everyone serves this melancholy goodbye covered in fog. And you leave and then the credits just roll silent. Yeah, because you didn't try to pursue the truth. Because you didn't calm the hell down and think about it clearly. But if you calm the hell down, then you realize, wait a second, there's more to this Namatame shit. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Obviously this is not the end of the fucking game. Even though all the characters, this is the second point in the game where all the characters are like, this is it, this is over, this is the ending. This is definitely the ending. But yeah, no, the... You, you, after everybody calms the hell down, you all sort of decide to try to think this through, figure out what the fuck you're missing, because you're clearly missing something, and then Narukami is presented this fat list of, like, basically everybody you've met so far in the game that you can then accuse of being the killer, and one of them is the killer. Yes. And yes. the killer is Adachi. Yes. Toru Adachi, who is... A young, he's the detective, a Dojima's partner who showed up in town like about a month or so before you did. Sort of, he's been sent to the boonies because he did something wrong when he was assigned to, when he was a cop in the city. And he's just a guy who's very frustrated with his lot in life right now. And he's also a really huge misogynist and kind of really fucking creepy and maybe a little bit rapey. And so he's the guy who killed uh, Mayumi Amino and Saki Konishi. He's the original culprit who threw people into the TVs. And kind of set up convoluted this scenario wherein Namatame would continue to do his work. Yeah, yeah. He sort of pushed... He, after he discovered that Namatame also has the power, he sort of pushed him along this path to encourage him to have this messiah complex. And then so past the first two murders, and then he's also the guy who throws Kubo into the TV, Adachi just sort of sits back and watches everything unfold. And... Sort of, I, I guess, the path... It's, it's, this is a fun part, because you literally do get to deduce who the person is, and if you get yeah. it wrong, you're fucked. Yeah. But I think you're given three, three options. Chances, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, sort of, I guess we'll talk about how you kind of come to that conclusion just playing the game. For me, it was that, you know, you start out, Adachi's a character you really love, because he's a funny guy, he's kind of fun to have around. Yeah. He's very lazy, but it seems kind of endearing at first, but at a certain point, it's like, he's a little too lazy. Yeah. He's hanging out at Juness a little too much. Juness is where the TVs are. Huh. Even though that really has nothing to do yeah, with it. Yeah, that has absolutely nothing to do with it. it but um, I, mean, I don't know. It's that, just is, a that, is, that is no. No, that is, that is a shitty deduction. No, you I got it wrong. I didn't deduct that he was throwing him into the TV at Juness. Deduct but, is not a word. It's deduce. Okay. 
Anyway, but that's not what my deduction was. No. Anyway, I'm just saying. Anyway, so there's always, you know, he's a little too incompetent in terms of giving you shit about the investigation. He, he's always, like, I think that what tipped me off to Adachi was he's just always there giving you information about what the police is doing and giving yeah, yeah. you their, like, and he has no reason to be spilling all this information all the fucking time. And that's yeah. sort of like, he's he's involved in this in some way. He's, like, pushing things yeah, in some once, way. Yeah, once it becomes a trend, you start to pick up on it, and then you're given the option, and it becomes clear that someone in the police may have something to do with this. It's like, yeah, yeah that's... that's It's either him or Dojima, and it's probably not Dojima. It could have been Dojima. could have been Dojima. Yeah. That would have been fucked up, but yeah. yeah. It was not a good the whole time, I'm yeah. telling you. That's true, the real, true ending. Yeah, the real, true, good ending. It's Persona 4-2. Yes. Anyway, so... You 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 know to do Sisodachi, and uh, then 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 shit gets real. Yeah, yeah. You discover Adachi is the real killer. He goes into the TV. He also he's one of the three people who has the power to go to the TV before he has the persona. And so you everybody decides, okay, this is it. This is really finally ultimately this guy is the fucking culprit. He's the dude who threw the first two people on the TV. We know this for sure. He is this is it. This is over. You take care of Adachi. It's yeah, that's done. That's Should, like mission accomplished. Should we mention that during this period of the game the town is covered in fog twenty four seven. People are going crazy. If you play the whole month of December and and like rescue Adachi at your last possible opportunity, you get to just see the town go insane. Yeah, yeah, right. because the fog just simply will not lift lift. Everybody thinks it's poisonous in some way. They're just like crazy. Crazy dudes running around with gas masks and shit. It's probably what actually happened. I mean, yeah. if you were just... If, yeah, yeah, if it was just foggy for a month with absolutely no reason, like, nobody has any explanation, like, every, like all the scientists are like, we don't know what the fuck's going on, this is pretty fucking crazy. And that's what's so creepy about the bad ending, is it's basically you're in the apocalypse because you're three, four months into it, and everyone's just given up all hope. Yeah, and it's yeah just like, the fog has, yeah, if you get the bad ending, the fog has not lifted for four months. Yeah. And there's just, like, this great moment in that bad ending where on the TV there's just, like, the fog forecast for the week. Yeah. It's like, it looks like it'll be a little lighter tomorrow, but it's still going to be foggy. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, but if you go, you know, get Adachi out of the TV, confront him. Yeah, he's the culprit. It's the yeah. end. This is yeah. it. This is the final battle. But you also meet someone with Adachi. No, wait, who... Wait. Uh, Aminosagiri? Yeah, that's important to the I, plot. I don't think of, like, you meet Aminosagiri. He's a, the fucking god of fog. You don't just, like, meet him. But yeah, yeah. That's the first time he appears in the game. I don't know. You say it like it's like this casual, like, he's just like, oh, hey, hi, Aminosagiri, my, my name's not coming. Alright, there's a major revelation in the game. Yes. Once you beat Adachi, then you find out Aminosagiri was behind things. Yes, the, the Aminosagiri is the... Yeah, no, this is, like, really, finally, this is the last... You defeat Adachi, now this is really the last battle, because this is a dude who creates the fog. This has got to be it, right? Like, everybody's, this is the final battle, this is it, this is the end of the game. Aminosagiri, the god of the fog, he, he sort of tests you, the children of the new potential, as he calls you, to see if you have this power to overcome the fog and sort of defeat Aminosagiri, improve that humanity. It has some worth in that they shouldn't just be consumed by the fog. So yes. you do that, you beat the game, this is the last fight. There's obviously nothing more beyond this at all. This is it. But then you have January to play. Yeah, then you have all of January. Yeah, and you're just kind of winding down, you're enjoying the peacetime. But then Marie goes missing. And it's sad, because yeah. Marie's your friend. And she was she was a sad person, because she had no memories. And she wrote really nice poems. Yeah. But she got really mad when you read them, because Margaret's a fucking cunt. <laughs> just lay them out. Yeah. And, and anyway... 
Um, I mean, this is all exclusive to the Golden, but it is important to the plot yeah. of yeah, how definitely. it's been reworked. So Marie, you finally decide, you know, you get to go rescue her from sort of her dungeon she's created, which is the embodiment of the Hollow Forest concept. Yeah, yeah. And it turns out she is, um, what's, what exactly is she named in this part? Uh, I don't remember what the name of she is. Like, she is this fragment of a goddess, yeah. basically, at this point in the game. Yeah. I don't remember what name they give her. And you find out, basically, it's very complicated. It's And not in a bad way, it's just, it's kind of like, it's hard to s- explain really succinctly. But she is, she will either have to, she, all the fog, when it lifted from Inaba, came into her, and if she does not die, it will come back onto the world. Yeah, because she is, in a sense, sort of like a sister to Amino Sagidi. Yeah. Yeah. So... Marie wants to die because she doesn't want to destroy the world, and you kind of, you know, you have to convince her, no, Marie, you can live, but we'll, we'll fight the fog, we'll get rid of the fog here, you do that, and you're able to bring Marie back with you, and yeah. then you think... But that was it, yeah, that was it, that's the final battle, you save Marie, your friend, this is it, it's over. And on your way out of town, you realize, I might have missed something. There, didn't people say something about a true ending to this game? This is, this, there are a lot more trophies in this game that I have not unlocked that are just sort of hidden. There's, yeah. there's something else going on here. So you basically then sort of... The, the, the true ending, how you trigger it, you know, you go to... You, you try to... You bring the investigation team together one more time to go through things one last time, and you realize there's one thing, this one lingering thing that you hadn't even thought of, but when you think of it, it's so fucking obvious that this yeah. is something you need to answer, which is... Where did the Midnight Channel come from? And it was Chie the whole time. Chie told everybody about the Midnight Channel. There is this funny moment where it seems like, yeah, that could be, did Chie, is Chie the villain? What the fuck? Because she's the one who told everyone about the Midnight Channel. Yeah. But that's not really the answer. No. Or is it? Or is it? No. But you decide to go into the TV world one last time, try to figure this out. Actually, you don't. First, you go around, you you gather some evidence. And I I like this part of the game because if you just talk to random people, you can just accuse any motherfucker of being the, like, actual ruler of the fog. It's like, you're the one who did it, you're the real culprit. Yeah. Old man who's always standing by the shrine, I knew it was you the whole time. But Damn you, housewife, by the grocery store! But what turns out is you remember, and I think you remember this before the game remembers this for yeah. you, that when you first came to Inaba, you stopped at a gas station. And this really weird gas station attendant talked to you. And you yeah. thought nothing of it at the time. Yeah, but he shakes your hand, and then, like, five seconds after he shakes your hand, you get nauseous and kind of carsick. And it's just, again, you don't think anything of it at the time, but now it's obvious that's important. You go find the gas station attendant, and it turns out she is Izanami. Yes, the Izanami Nobukami. Yes, the, like, sort of the mother goddess, like her and Izanagi are sort of the two of the primary gods in Japanese mythology. And she, this is actually, this is, seriously, no, this is actually it. She is the ruler of the fog. She, she's the one who created Amino Sagiri. She's the one who created Marie. And she's sort of decided that she's going to obey the will of mankind because everybody wants to live in this really nice world where, from your perspective, all of your desires are fulfilled, where you don't have to hide your personality. She just wants to create this paradise on Earth using this magical fog. But these fucking teenagers with their goddamn persona shit, keep on fucking everything up. And she's the one who gave you, Adachi, and Naratami the ability to enter the TV without persona. She sort of gave your uh, wildcard ability, your like personal persona ability, a little bit of a push when she did it. And But now you figure it out. You figure it out it's Isanami no Okami, and you're like, fucking okay, this is actually properly the... This seriously is the ending of the game. And you decide you're gonna go kill a goddess. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. You know. While I do love Persona 4, 
That kind of, why I don't, that happens like every fucking JRPG. It always ends with you killing a god. I don't yeah. know why that is. Well, okay, you know, this is, I think, something we need to get into sort of our first major critical discussion of the game yeah. here now, 46 minutes into the podcast, which is that I think you and I have slightly different opinions of the ending. Yeah. I like it more than you, I think. Yeah, yeah, um, probably. So, the true ending for me, I think when I got to it, I obviously was interested to see how they were going to wrap this game up, because even when it feels like you've done everything, you do feel like you, there's something more to it, and even if you can't, if you don't pinpoint it's the Midnight Channel right away, even before that, it's like, I, I want to see how they're going to really tie all of this together, because this is an incredibly long game, big story, yeah. I wanted to see them stick the landing, and for me at least, I really do think the true ending does that. I don't think it does it perfectly, I don't think it does it flawlessly, by any means, but I think it's a really good ending that, to me, really satisfied me and, and what I'd gone through with this game. And I think the first thing is just that how you trigger the true ending, talking about the Midnight Channel, there's just this sense of suddenly when everything starts coming together and you realize the entire game has been so meticulously planned and all that stuff in the beginning that you just think is basic setup suddenly comes back and is like, this is very important and you do have agency here in figuring this out as the player. And that's really interesting to me. And then once you actually go and confront Izanami no Okami, I think there's some really good story stuff there where... What I was kind of worried about when you find out there's another goddess, like the goddess, who's yeah, controlling yeah, all this. Yeah, the, the goddess. I was worried there was going to be a lot about yeah, manipulation, that maybe the player's role in all this would be sort of minimized, that your characters were all manipulated in sort of a destiny kind of way, which I really didn't want to hear about. And that's really not what the ending is about, and that's yeah. what I like, is that the whole thing is Izanami saying... She just put these couple of little things in place. Gave three people the ability to enter the TV, created the Midnight Channel. Created the TV world world. of the fog. Yeah, and that's it. And then just let it go and wanted to see where it would take. And she pretty much knew where it would go. But there was still, everyone had agency through this. So really and truly, people's choices, humanity's choices, and then the choices, not all of humanity obviously, but these characters, the choices you make throughout the game... Uh, and again, not necessarily as the player, but in the story, the choices the characters make, what happens, the choices the bad people make, the good people make, these are all real and they matter because they're not just being manipulated, these are all things that the tools are just there, Izanami put out, and and this is where it's led. And that sort of leads you to this point where, you know, you've done all this stuff and you are, because you have had agency throughout, you now have the agency still to say, no, Izanami, we do not want the world to become fog and everyone to turn into shadows, and... While there are some issues with how that's presented in the game, I, and Sean, I know what you're going to say, yeah. and, and we'll talk about that more later, I just do like that idea that the things you did in this game really mattered, and that's underlined at the end of the game, and there's no you know rug pull where it's like, you know oh, you were all puppets or something. In a sense, you were, because she wanted some of these outcomes to happen, but it's that you really do realize the frailties of the characters of the world you live in, that none of you have been perfect along this whole path. You are all somewhat responsible for where this has gone, mm-hmm. and that responsibility really does turn here at the end of the game into how you are going to decide where the world goes from here. And I think that's a really interesting place to bring the game and really satisfying for me. And the final boss fight is pretty awesome. Yeah. And, you know, well, I really like that ending. Um, and, Sean, I, I know you don't hate it or anything. Yeah, but. no, no, yeah. I mean, I... I, I think it is a really good ending. I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I like all those parts of the ending a lot. I yeah. like, especially, I like how the true ending comes about. I like that they, it is it is fucking incredible to me that they are able to basically stick this 
having set all that stuff up at the very beginning of the game and then bring it back around in such an organic way by the end where it doesn't feel like it's shoehorned in or it doesn't feel like ridiculous. You, like It feels like this very natural sort of revelation of, you know, oh, yeah, shit, that gas station tenant was really fucking kind of creepy for a reason. And yeah. no, I was not carsick, Nanako, goddammit. That just doesn't happen when you're randomly standing outside. But yeah, like I really like all those elements of it. And I do like the idea... I, I always like this in fiction of this idea of the sort of the gods not being sort of emotionally invested in anything or trying to like really push this very specific agenda, but more just being like, we're just going to put these pieces in place and we are going to test humanity. We're just yeah, going yeah. to we're just going to give you this test. It's not like Izanami has a bit of an agenda in that she does have this like she can see the desires of all mankind and wants to sort of push that, but she's willing to give the investigation team a chance to fight for what they believe in. And I like those elements of it. And I like, I agree with all of what you just said. Yeah. I think it's a good way to put it is the gods seeing what humanity will do a test. I like yeah. that idea too. But it's like the part that I don't like, and this is what every single JRPG other than persona three has fallen into. I think persona three is the only JRPG I've ever played where I really, really where the ending to persona three is the best part of persona three. Every JRPG other than that I've played falls into this trap of, and this is also this is something that's a lot of really common to a lot of Japanese storytelling in general that I don't like is you have these like sort of high philosophical arguments at the very end where it tends to at least Izanami does not have this very very long protracted monologue like uh, Adachi has but you have these like these characters having these philosophical agendas and before they just fucking decide we're just going to duke it out and kill each other here we're going to have this really long debate about whatever this thing is. And a lot of times they just that debate doesn't work out for me because a lot of times I think the the philosophical concepts are sort of too high that they don't apply to really anything like physical or real so I don't give a shit about it like it just sort of ties into my own personal philosophies on a lot of this stuff. But then specifically with Persona 4, what I don't like about it is that they start to do that. Like, Izanami starts this sort of philosophical thing where she starts talking about how what she is doing is enacting the desires of mankind. What she is doing is trying to give humanity what they actually want, like these lives where even though they are being enshrouded by this fog, humanity would feel like they are being fulfilled. Humanity would, would be able to express their repressed selves because they wouldn't see other people, like, honestly responding to those facets of their personality. And, like, Izanami wants to respond to the, to that unanimous desire of mankind. And, you know, you can, like, personally, like, I don't honestly think that is such a terrible thing, whatever. But you can, like, your personal philosophies can inform how you feel about that specific thing that Izanami's trying to do. But none of the characters try to engage Izanami on that philosophical, philosophical level in any way. And I agree with that. I, that yeah. is a problem. And I think, for me, the obvious thematic parallel here is that all these characters have overcome those base humanity desires yeah. to live in fog. They all did face their repressed selves, and they became stronger for it. And if those characters had just said that, like, yeah. look, we did this, maybe other people can too. This is why we believe in humanity. We yeah. have all these friends. We were all able to do that. They would be like a very short couple lines of dialogue before you get into the actual fight that would not alleviate those problems entirely, but yeah. at least... Because there is in this game, they have lived through proof of their own beliefs, yeah. and they don't offer it at that moment, and that is a problem. Yeah, and instead, like, the gist of what every single character says is, shut the hell up, we never asked for this, I'm going to beat the shit out of you, bitch! Yeah. Like, that is basically what every single character yells out at that scene, it's just like, I don't know, I'm just like, I'm... 
part of me kind of agrees with Izanami. You know, like, mankind is pretty shitty. And, like, your solution to these problems is not feasible in any way. You can't throw every motherfucker into the TV, have them face their shadow, and then defeat their shadow using your personas. Like, that's not a reasonable way to go about this. Yeah. So, and, and you're right. So it's just this idea of whenever you have to confront a god, you know... Just kids are not really equipped to confront a god. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that. That part gets pretty ridiculous. And then there's also like, even though they don't, they don't do the high philosophical stuff. Like they don't engage in the debate almost at all. Even trying to bring up the debate in a way, I don't necessarily like that. A lot of these endings because it is also it sort of like saps a lot of the emotion out of the endings to me. A lot of times where it's like you're. You're, like, about to go in, like, this is, like, life-or-death situation, and then the, the last boss starts waxing philosophical about the nature of pain and how yeah. humanity just hurts itself and shit like that. It's just, like, like, either let's have this full intellectual debate and let's just fucking do it, or let's not do this and just, like, you're fucking evil, like, you are doing this shit, like, you have been corrupted in some way, and we are going to beat the shit out of you. Like, let's... I don't know, like, I, I feel, and again, I think most of the ending I really, really like, and I think the the philosophical stuff it does, Persona does do better than most JRPGs I've played, like, it's not as bad as a lot of the latter-day Final Fantasies, but... Yeah, and it obviously does yeah. play into the themes of the game, yeah, but those themes are presented on a very small-scale human emotional level, person-to-person, person, yeah. moment-by-moment, and this is more about the world, humanity, time, life itself... And that's a different scale than the rest of the game operates yeah, on. Yeah, it's like dealing with this, like, what is the nature of humanity? Like, what yeah. does the entirety of mankind truly want? Yeah. And, you know, Izanami does have access to what does the entirety of mankind really want? And, you know, seven uppity teenagers and their fucking bear decide they're going to just decide, no, we don't like, we don't like what you're doing with your, like, being able to enact the will of all mankind. We're going to fuck your shit up, Izanami no Okami. So anyway, this is also probably a good time to talk about how, you know, if you beat Izanami, you get through all that, then the ending really happens, you know, you, yeah, the next day you leave, yeah, the next day you leave, your friends say goodbye, Teddy has a really nice speech, you're on the train, but if you play Golden, suddenly you skip forward a couple months, and yeah, you come four back months to, later. And, and the pacing just goes the fuck out the window, yeah. and you come back to Inaba, and you have this like 30 minute sequence where you're back, you visit the town, see how they're doing, Namatame's running for mayor, the shopping district is booming, and you and your friends, your friends try to surprise you, you go back to Dojima's house, have some sushi. Everybody got haircuts. Yeah. Naoto is really like kind of flaunting that she is yeah. a woman, she's yeah. very proud of her sexuality now, and... And then sort of you end on this little animated cutscene where everyone says, welcome back, and then, then you go into the credits. This is probably our least favorite part of the Golden, right? Yeah, yeah this is the most unnecessary addition to me, just because yeah. it's... Yeah, it, it, it sort of kills the pacing of that ending, yeah. where the, originally the ending it ends with, after you beat Izanami, it's like it's the next day, you go to the train station, It's your you have to move back to Tokyo now, and... Everybody sort of sees you off, and as you get on the train, and as the train's leaving, Teddy gives a speech, and then that's when the credits start playing right there. Yeah, and the song that plays over the credits, and we'll do a big music discussion later, but the song Nevermore, which is really good, maybe the best song in Persona 4, definitely one of the best, yeah. is if you know you read the, the lyrics, a translation of the lyrics, that's what it's about, is this idea of leaving... But having come to this emotional point where you are ready to go, yeah. knowing that you know you're secure enough to know that you're not you're not you're you're not leaving your friends behind. You'll see them again. You'll you'll be you'll still be friends. That's not ending. Yeah, you'll meet them two months in Persona Four Arena. <laughs> but the point is, you know, I think 
so much of the the game, I think, at a certain point. Because, like, halfway through when I'm playing it, I was really sad at this idea that Narukami was going to have to leave his friends behind. But by the end, you really do go through this arc where you realize that's just kind of how life goes. Yeah. And this is something where you have to have the strength to face that next day, you know, March 22nd, when you have left Inaba. Mm-hmm. and that's where the game leaves you, and that is the correct emotional place to leave you, because that's what yeah. that game is building to. If I'm not mistaken, the animated version, I was reading about this earlier, the anime, its episode of the true ending even ex- expands upon that a little bit more, where yeah. you faces his shadow self, and his fear is about... Kind of. Yeah. Not, not really. Like, okay. it, it is not his actual shadow self. Right, but it's... Made by Isanami Nolkami. Right, but it's still something where they're they're d- discussing the sphere of, of leaving his friends or yeah. something. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's actually there's a really great sequence in the True Ending episode of the anime that deals okay. with that. So anyway, so these are what the... Uh, that's just, I'm using that you know as evidence. That's really what that ending is about. Yeah, and then also, I, I like it just because it's got the nice circular thing, because the game begins with Narukami on the fucking train going into Inaba. Like, that's, yeah. that is the first shot of the game. And yeah. I, like, I like having that parody. Yes. And so, it's a really good ending. It feels emotionally whole. And then when you tack on this extra half hour, which is not bad by any means. It's a well-produced, it's got some good moments. But it's so out of place. The pacing just really gets shot there. It's the first time in the whole game where you feel like this is too long. Like, yeah. this is... We're over, right? Why yeah. am I still watching it's like we, it's really It was really seriously over this time, goddammit. Like, yeah. this is the fourth time. We seriously... No guys is dumb. How great would it have been if there was, like, another boss fight? Yeah, yeah. They just, like, threw another one in there. It's like, no, seriously, this is... For fuck's sake, this is actually the ending. It's like... It's like the return of the king of video games. Where it's just, like... He just, like, fades out and comes back in. Then fades out and comes back in. It's like... This is actually the ending, right? But anyway, it's just, yeah, this this extra 30 minutes, it, it just, it really, it, it kind of, it, I think it kind of misunderstands what was so good about that original ending. And it's a weird complaint to make because it's the Golden Team wanting to throw too much more stuff yeah. in there. I can't be mad at them for that. It's like, you know, you guys were so eager about this game, you wanted to create even more, but at a certain point they went a tad too far, and that's those last 30 minutes. Yeah. I mean, and for me, like, the last 30 minutes, like, I recognize it's pretty dumb, but it wasn't that big of a deal because I've already played it with the original ending, so it is like, for someone who's already played Persona 4, it is a nice little bit of extra material that is just yeah. like, okay, but, yeah. yeah, I think like, as, like looking at it as part of like the whole Persona 4 experience is pretty unnecessary. Yeah, and I think, I even said when I played it, if they had just moved it after the credits, I would have no complaints, because yeah, yeah. you could, if you didn't like it, you could just ignore it, and if you do, then it would feel in place, because that then agree. you really do get the sense of it's over, but now we have an epilogue, because that's what it is, it's an epilogue, yeah. It's not like the Persona 3 epilogue, which is another 30-hour campaign, <laughs> yeah. but it's, you know, a nice little 30-minute cutscene, and, you know, it, it just, going before the credits is a weird decision, because I agree, I like seeing where these characters are at in their lives at this point. I like seeing all the new haircuts and stuff. Naoto looks really hot, you know, Yeah. but Yukiko does too, even though she's not wearing her glasses. So, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Anyway, so... You know how creepy you can be later. I'm not being creepy. What am I being creepy? Nothing. Let's just go. You're a fucking dick. Anyway, all right. So, that's the story. We talked about the ending. What else do we want to say about the story, Sean? Sort of on a a broad level, do you like the story in Persona 4? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it is a really, really good mystery plot. And I think one of the most impressive things, you know, I make fun of, you know, seriously, this is the ending, guys. This is it just because that's what the characters do. And I actually think it's a really smart thing they do. I like that they do this in the game because every single video game you always have that, like, there's, like, this line of dialogue in every single video game where it's, like, this is the final boss fight, this is the end of the game, just so you know. Like, it's just, like, I 
like every game has those lines, and I like in Persona Four they put that line every single time the characters think it's over. Like, they always have, like, this is it, this is the last boss fight. Like, Rise is like, this is our final battle when you're up against Adachi. Like, they really try to push that, like, this is the end of the game. And I like they, like, that kind of, like, I like they keep that perspective from the characters' points of view for, like, the yeah. entirety of the game. It's like, you're, they keep the sense of the mystery, even if, you know, I, I figured out it was Adachi around, like, the point you get Rise. So, like, I, it's, it's not like... The most, you know, like complex sort of like super hard to solve mystery in the world. Like those pieces are in place, but they do they do enough that it, it's very interesting, and you want to see what happens, and you want to see the plot move forward, and you want to figure out what the fuck is actually going on here. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a pretty top notch mystery, and I think it's multifaceted in a way that feels very authentic to what a mystery like this reasonably would be. Yeah, you know, that most mysteries are not as simple as you know a Sherlock Holmes ten page short story where you you know identify the culprit and that's it. Yeah, there are a lot of pieces to it, and there are a lot of pieces to this too. And it, I feel like they. To me, the story is something that is there in Persona 4, or this part of the story, this, you know, the, the major main plot, because there's a lot of little stories in it, obviously, yeah. but the major story is really there to let all the other parts of the game shine, and it does that, I think, pretty flawlessly yeah. in terms of, it's a story that allows you to have this year-long structure, because going day-to-day through this story really makes sense, because it is that complex. Mm-hmm. It does warrant that level of time. But more importantly, I think it enables all the characters to confront themselves in ways that feel organic and, and meaningful and emotional. And, you know, the story, this, this mystery plot, is very crucial in allowing all those other great parts of the game to succeed. And in its own way, the plot is great, even though it is the part of Persona 4, I think, that is the least like compelling in some ways. Is yeah, but it's, yeah, but it's designed to be that <laughs> right, way. Right. Like the, yeah, the point of the game is not to have like the plot be the most compelling part. The point of the right. game is that the characters are the most compelling part, and the plot is there to serve the characters yes. and keep your interest. And I think it does that really, really well. I agree. So, I don't know if there's any more to say about that. What should we transition into next? I think we should probably start talking about the characters. Like All right. That is the other main thing, I guess, in the game. Yeah. So we've been hinting about them. We'll probably just go character by character. You know, we'll talk about the gameplay mechanics a little later, but we're going to be talking about the social links during this part, like which characters, like, we'll, we'll mention, you know, this character has a great social link. Yeah. So really quickly how this, you know, works from a gameplay mechanic is when you're in, the main thing you do day-to-day in the real world when you're not in the TV is working on your social links. So when yeah. you have free time, when you're not in school doing classes and stuff, you can go find someone and hang out with them, and, and the hanging out triggers an event. Where which is a social link event, yeah. and you you have ten events basically with each person. Once you max out your social link, um, if it's a squad mate, their persona evolves. Um, if it's someone else, you you finish the social link, yeah. and and the social links, uh, you know, they play into your ability to fuse personas because each social link is associated with an arcana in the persona compendium, and if you you know, fuse persona. Let's say you complete Chies, that's the chariot arcana. You want to fuse a chariot persona, you get a fuck ton of exp. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you've completed her social link. So that's sort of the gameplay side of it. But really, Yeah, we'll go more in-depth and explain those mechanics later. Right, right. I'm just yeah. saying, but in its, in its main way, that's kind of what you get out of on the gameplay side, but really from a story side, the social links are a way to really get to know these characters and follow up on what you've learned from them in the main plot. And that's a really nice device, because it, it, it for one, it emphasizes that these characters are never done evolving. You know, yeah. no one in this game is at a perfect place of human perfection yeah. at the end of the game. They're all still... Their, their work's in progress, and that's what the social links are really about, is following up on what their parts in the main story, what happened, and where they're going in their lives. And, um, so yeah, but but let's start at the beginning. Narukami! Okay, the, the protagonist. Yes. 
He is a cool motherfucker. He, yeah, yeah, he is. He he can pop his collar. He yeah, can pop his collar hard. Narukami is a badass. Yeah, yeah, Narukami. You know, he's as you said, he that's the official name for the protagonist, and I think he's he is like sort of the typical JRPG like silent protagonist, but you have some dialogue options, but. There's, I feel like there is a lot of subtle characterization to Narutami, just yeah. presented through what those character, like those dialogue of those three dialogue options you're given at certain points of the game. There's sort of like there are sort of certain commonalities between all of them. That's like you get this sense of that, like one he like he he's really calm all the time. He's got a really weird fucking sense of humor. He's just like a really weird guy, kind of yeah. because. Because, he, but he also has this really magnetic, charismatic personality, and he really cares about all his friends. And, yeah. and I, I like that. You know, there's like a little bit of characterization, but I like that there is that little bit of characterization that Narukami isn't like this complete blank slate just for the player to inhabit. Like he's there's a little bit of something to him. And, and with that little bit of something, you can read upon that in so many ways. Especially yeah. once you get to the point where you get to date like eight different girls. Yeah, we, we like are, I think. My most fun times talking about this game with you is our speculation on what Narukami is really like. Yeah, yeah, Because, yeah, yeah you have... Because he, he goes through some ridiculous... Like, he, like, if you try to... And this is one of the things that the anime version of the... The anime adaptation of the game does really well is sort of, like, trying to nail down who Narukami is. Like, what would this person actually be like who has all this influence over people all the time, who can have eight different girlfriends, who takes three different jobs, who is sort of obsessive about improving the relationships of, like, with everybody around him. Like, just so he so he has this, like, ability to then go into the TV and, like, kid, like fight shadows with his personas. Like, he's got to be kind of, like, a really weird, messed up, but really awesome dude. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know. It's so fun to talk about the girlfriend part of it, especially, because it's just like, Narukami, he is, he's a player. He... Yeah, he is the infamous ladies' man of Inaba. Yes, he, as I say in the Ultimate yeah. Mayanaka Arena. Yeah, yeah. He, he gets around. And and he's good at keeping it a secret, but man, you know, and he's also good at playing it off. If you know, if you go out on Sunday with a girl and one of your other girls sees you, you're like, no, baby, baby, she means nothing to me. It's just all a misunderstanding. Yeah, like we're just friends. I swear. Yeah, it's messy, but you know, Narukami always patches it up on Christmas Eve. You know, he knows just what to say to get the ladies to stay over. Then he reloads his save and then goes with another girl. Yep. And on Valentine's Day, shit comes crashing down around him. But yeah. he still manages to, to... He breaks everyone's hearts, but they won't leave him. Because yeah. no one leaves Narukami, even if he's a kind of a horrible monster. Yeah, because when you get a level 10 social link with someone, that bond is unbreakable, motherfucker. Yeah. It, it, once you, like, it doesn't matter if Narukami is like the most misogynistic, like racist fucking prick. Once you get to level 10, you're stuck. That bond is unbreakable. Your friends slash girlfriends... Ever. Yes. So, I mean, just, I, I just love the idea that in this game, you know, you can have so much fun speculating about Narukami because literally everyone falls in love with him. Yeah. Men, women, bears, doesn't matter. Everybody yeah. loves Narukami. Foxes. Yes, it's just foxes. Anything. Yeah. Anything and everything. Yeah. And while in the game's Jesus, he, you know, he only sleeps with women, who knows? He's, <laughs> yeah. Yosuke really seems like in those last couple <laughs> social league events, Yosuke kind of wants to suck Narukami's dick. Yeah, partner. Yeah. He really does. <laughs> Alright, so I think that's a good transition as any into Yosuke, yeah. the next sort of significant character you meet. Yeah. And your partner, as they say, throughout the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And y- Yosuke is, he's sort of, kind of, I would say, fills the role of, he's like, he's your best friend kind yeah. of guy. Yeah, he's, 
he, he he's I would almost say if like Narukami was not there, Yosuke would be the main character. He is the guy who, until you get Naoto, he's always the one sort of trying to figure out what's going on. He has the most personal interest in the mystery because he had a crush on Saki and she was the second victim. Saki Senpai. Yeah. As we hear him say maybe five million times. Yeah. Just like really sort of dejected, just like Saki Senpai. Yeah. yeah he, he does that a lot. Yeah. But yeah, in Yosuke. Yeah, yeah, and he sort of also kind of fills this comic relief-ish role. I mean, all the characters kind of fulfill a comic relief role yeah. because they're all very funny. But he's sort of the—he—he's a guy who, like, in the comedy scenes, he's the reaction dude. Yeah. Like everybody else does something really dumb, and Yosuke is the guy who's like, "What the hell are you guys doing? It's, you can't make that. You can't make mystery food X and have Nanako eat it. Yeah. What the hell is going on?" There's a lot of really high-pitched screaming coming from Yosuke that yeah. I, I, I'm really fond of. Yeah. And Yosuke, I have an interesting sort of relationship with Yosuke where I think... just <laughs> like, you know, every time, you know, it's like you usually stick with the girls. It's like, but if you can't get any with the girls right now, you call them over, that kind of relationship? No, I mean sort of in how I... for life? No, that's not what I meant. Okay. He's a video game character, Sean. <laughs> anyway. But, uh, sort of, you know, with Yosuke, I think... There's a lot of stretches of the game where I don't like Yosuke, and he's my least favorite character, and I kind of get annoyed by him. And then I think about halfway through the game, I came around to this realization where I realized, that's the point. Yosuke, yeah, Yosuke is, is an asshole. Yeah. Like, that, that is like, if you look at his scene where he encounters his shadow, that's what he has to deal with, is this realization that he's, he's kind of an asshole. Like, yeah. he has to come to terms with that part of his personality. He's a dick. Yeah. And, and I think once you kind of realize that about Yosuke, that's to me when I really started to come around to loving this character and really thinking he was a really valuable part of the game, is that those complexities about him and that, that thing where they do not always ask you to like Yosuke, that's kind of a bold move and I think it's a good move. And I think it yeah. works really well and I think there's a lot of the game with, with Yosuke where I, I think he's a very compelling character because of how... Little in some points the game is asking you to outright like this guy, and it's it's never even overt. It's not like he just goes around screwing people over or anything. Yeah. It's just sort of this general air about him sometimes, and especially kind of the way he treats Kanji sometimes. He's yeah. a real fucking dick to Kanji. Yeah, he's a little bit homophobic. Yeah, or incredibly homophobic in yeah. parts, but for, for a Japanese person, a little bit homophobic. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, and I think that's interesting, and I think the actor who plays him in English... Which we should probably talk Yuri about. Yuri Lowenthal. Yeah, we. Right. Well, I was going to say this. We should probably mention just how fucking good the English dub is in a moment here. Yeah. But anyway, I think he really captures that, and I think it's a tough. I think that's a very tough character to balance vocally, and I think he does a great job. Yeah. And yeah, I think Yosuke often is the character who, in the cutscenes, he does uh, like you said the reactions, the way he just is so exasperated by all the girls trying to cook. Yeah. That, that's very funny. Um, like and, his, I like his relationship with Teddy. How yeah, it's yeah. like he, because yeah, Yosuke is the dude who is the least like capable of putting up with just like random bullshit. <laughs> like he he just doesn't want to deal with it. Yet somehow he hooks up and starts living with not hooks up in like romantic sense, but yeah. like but Teddy starts living with him. And Teddy is the character who is always up to the most crazy, just annoying shit. All the fucking time. Come on. Yeah. It's, it's like, I like that relationship between those two characters because it's like, they, you, you get the sense that they really kind of come to love each other in a like, brotherly sense. Yeah. But they also really fucking hate each other, too. Yeah. Well, I don't know if Teddy hates Yosuke. Teddy's kind of oblivious to that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, Yosuke also, I think this is important to remember, is that for me... I think Yosuke has absolutely one of the best social links in the game. I agree. If you play through his events, because 
while he can be kind of a dick in the main part of the game, when you play through his social links and you realize that he's dealing with some stuff and he's dealing with his own sort of self-loathing in some cases. Yeah, because he realizes he's a fucking asshole. And it's like, it is hard to live realizing you're an asshole. Yeah. I can attest to that. (laughs) And and very much trying to sort of deal with that and and better himself, which I think when you apply that to the game, I think he does try to better himself throughout. Yeah. And and I think the social link, there are some really kind of very, very raw emotional scenes in Yosuke's social link, especially whenever you're at Juness and just those two fucking cunts who work at Juness. Two fucking cunts. cunts. Who will never do their job, who just are bitching, they just want money for nothing. Yeah. And, and, and they're, they're being so mean to Yosuke. And those scenes... And they badmouth Saki Senpai. Yeah. It's messed up. Those scenes are really good. And just, I think, this entire emotional core to Yosuke's story, where he was in love with this girl who hated him. And that idea, and, and that all ties into his own self-loathing and yeah. things, it's very well done. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, because he's got two main issues. There's an issue with Saki, but then he's also got this thing where he, a year before you moved to Inaba, he moved to Inaba, so he's yeah. also a transfer student, lo and behold. Yes. And, uh... And his father is the branch manager of Juness, which is like basically you know, every day is like, great at your Juness. Yes, that's the Juness jingle. <laughs> that's basically like their version of Walmart, like the official yeah, yeah. version of Walmart. That like is in like Inaba is like this really small rural backwater Japanese town. Like it is really small. Everybody's like sort of hicks, if like to use like you know American terminology. And so Juness sort of moves in and is starting to put the shopping like the main shopping district out of business. So it's like move like sort of kicking out all the local businesses. Is. And he, you know, he's the son of the branch manager. He works at Juness, and so everybody kind of hates him. Not just because he's an asshole, but because to them he represents sort of this like big city arrogance. This sense of like everybody assumes that Yosuke thinks he's better than everybody else. That he represents like he's the scion of Juness, as they call him. And the, and and he they, and that's one of the things I like about his social link is seeing him trying to deal with these issues of that. He is has no responsibility. Like he is not at all at fault for what Juness is trying to do, but everybody sort of heaps that blame onto him. And yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting to watch him have to try to deal with that. Yes. And uh, his last social link scene, I know, is one you really love. Did you want to talk yeah. about that really quick? Yeah, yeah. Like he's, so, yeah. Over the course of his social link, you know, Narukami's just hanging out with Yosuke, just sort of talking him through his grief with Saki, and sort of trying to deal with the two bitches at Juness and sort of like all of that like everybody just hating Yosuke because he's a fucking asshole and so like so Yosuke has all these like pent up emotions and one of the other things about Yosuke like one of the things I think the biggest reason he is kind of an asshole like that part of his personality comes out when he gets he gets really jealous of people and very specifically he gets jealous of Narukami the main character because Who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah because you know, he's swimming in girls. He's he, he's the dude who gets to use the big fucking katana when he goes into the dungeon, whereas Yosuke's just got two fucking little shitty knives. It's like, he's got the cool fucking persona with, like, like you know, Narukami walks around with his fucking po- collar popped, like, one thumb in his pocket, just strutting around town, picking up ladies. He's the coolest motherfucker on the planet. And Yosuke's always having to sort of play second fiddle to him. Like, Yosuke feels like he is sort of Robin to Narukami's Batman. And so... In their last big social link event together, uh, you know, they are both on the Samagawa riverbed by the river, just sort of hanging out, and Yosuke is like, dude, I am such a fucking asshole, I have all this fucking pent-up, like, jealousy and sort of resentment to you, like, he's Captain Rizontama, as they call him, Persona 4 Arena, where he's just like, he's just so jealous of Narukami that he just wants Narukami to fucking sock him in the face, just like, I kind of want to sock you in the face sometimes, Yosuke. 
But I like they have this nice moment where where like your only real option in that scene is to have Narukami and Yosuke both sort of like duke it out to sort of because the, the, Narukami and Yosuke sort of want to be partners because that's sort of like what they call each other all the time is like you know they are partners on the investigation team they're sort of the two heads of it and they want to be on equal footing so they decide to duke it out and it's not just Narukami beating the shit out of Yosuke that they fight each other and that scene I think there's something about that scene that really sort of captures this sense of like male friendship yeah that that I really really like that a lot of times things are not able to get across properly that like they these two characters have this really close friendship but they're both sort of like aggressive male figures so they have these like they don't know how to deal with their emotions properly so they just sometimes they have to beat the fuck out of each other yeah and there's just this really great moment where when that happens it's just like the cutscene is sort of like it like sort of flashes to white and you hear a bunch of like punching sounds and then like fades back in right when they both punch each other in the face and then they fall to the ground it's a pretty great scene yeah it's really good so anything else to say about Yosuke I don't think so I think I think that about sums it up yeah so before we move on to the next, the yes. Before we move on to the next character, I did want to mention in sort of broader terms something we were talking about before, which is that, and I think we have to talk about this in context of the characters. Obviously, is the dub for this game yeah. is fantastic. I think it is the best English dub of a Japanese property Sean or I have ever heard. Right? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, and one of the most important things is that it is completely honest and authentic to the original Japanese version. Yeah, yeah. The the localization for this game. It, yeah, it's just slavish in its dedication to sort of trying to keep the Japanese culture being Japanese culture. It is the antithesis to sort of like the idea of localization of where you would like change names or change the names of like locations or people to make them like more palatable to an American audience. Yeah. This, you know, they, I think the thing, the, the most special thing to me about the localization for this, and it shares it with Persona 3, is something that I've never seen in anything else, is that they keep the Japanese honorifics in the names. Yeah, you know? every single time they come up. Yeah, yeah, they, they use, you know, Narukami-san, or Chie-chan, or Yubi-san. Nanako-chan yeah. is yeah. the one that you hear a lot. Yeah, Nanako-chan. It's like, they, they keep those uh, honorifics in Japanese names, which if you know anything about Japanese culture, is very important. How you yeah. address people is very important. You have to be very respectful, and there are very specific ways you address the different people in your life. And it also, it speaks to how you view those people, and it's a very... Yeah. It's a character thing. If you watch any Japanese property, the way honorifics are used in the dialogue is a part of the subtext of those stories, yeah, yeah. always. Yeah, like, there's one teacher in Persona 4 that whenever he calls on Narukami, he calls him Yuchan. I want to punch that dude in the face. Yeah, that yeah. dude's a disrespectful motherfucker. I know. So, and, and you know, senpai is the other big word that's very yeah. important in this because you have half your investigation team are first-year students, half of them are second-years, and so the first-years will always call the second-year senpai. Risei calls you senpai in a very sort of affectionate way because yeah. she loves the hell out of you because you're Narukami, yeah. man. And anyway, so, you know, senpai is a very important word to use and just, yeah, that level of, of just slavishness, like you said. Yeah, yeah, and senpai, you just say, it basically is just a basic term of respect for someone that is sort of in school, like who's your upperclassman or like in a job is in a like slightly higher position than you. Yeah. And it serves this other really nice function in the game where, you know, since you can name your main character whatever you want, obviously they none of the voice dialogue can use that character's name. And so since about half of the investigation team are first-year students, and so they would all refer to you realistically as senpai, they all can just say senpai. Yeah. And that's it. And if they had tried to change that in 
the American dub. What I mean, they wouldn't have been able to. That would have yeah, been really I mean, tough. The closest, I mean, I have seen senpai translated as upperclassmen, which is about as close as you can get to that but they, relationship. But, they but it doesn't convey anything about the actual word. Like, it's very literally, he is your upperclassman, so you, you would call yeah. him upperclassman, but nobody would say that. It doesn't no. convey the sense of sort of, like, respect. Yeah, it's really not a translatable word in that way. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, the, just the accuracy is off the charts in this dub everywhere, and just the quality of the voice acting, they got some of the best voice actors in the American, you know, voice acting industry. Yeah. It's just great across the board. We'll talk about them all individually, but it's just, it's a really special dub, and obviously part of why they were able to do such a good job is that there is no lip movements in Persona yeah. 4, except in the animated cutscenes. It's all, you see the character's face, there's a text box, and then behind that is what's going on in the sort of the pixelated world. Yeah, so so the translators don't have to translate to try to fit this like specific amount of time yeah. to like match the lip flaps, and the, the uh, voice actors don't have to bring out this really stilted performance to try to like have the words map match out with how the, the mouth is moving animated yeah so yeah so not having that gives them all this freedom to just translate it and uh, speak it however the hell they want yeah which in in most cases is just total accuracy yeah and yeah, it works definitely. really well so wanted to give kudos to that atlas usa you guys rock thank yeah. you for such a fucking great dub yeah and it is one of the cool things about the game is that if you have any interest in japanese culture it definitely the nature of sort of like just living in this rural japanese town for a year through the game is is like kind of gives you this nice crash course on japanese culture like, you learn a lot yeah you can learn you learn a lot about sort of how the school system works you learn a lot about how just like simple things like how you address people sort of like you learn a lot about sort of like very specific cultural uh, things they do, like their festivals, you know, like the whole thing where you smash watermelons open and shit like that. Like, they keep all that stuff intact. Or or the one that's like, I, I still don't understand where the fuck this comes from, but when you're sexually aroused, you get a nosebleed. Yeah. That, like, sort of like, I don't know, like old wives' tale, I guess, in Japan. Well, it holds true in this. There, there's a scene where Kanji gets a nosebleed when all the girls are in bikinis. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know how... I, not biologically accurate at all, but sure, whatever. Yeah, uh, the, the best use of that ever is in Dragon Ball when uh, Mutant Roshi gets a nosebleed and because he sees Bulma's tits and then his blood covers the Invisible Man and that's how Yamcha's just able to beat him. Yeah, love that. Yeah, which when you say it without having like actually like it's without really watching like I mean I've seen the scene, but yeah, when you just say it, it sounds really fucked up. Yeah, yeah, yeah it but, is fucked up. Anyway, yeah. back to Persona Four. The next character we have to talk about is Chie Satonaka. Yes. So Chie, I will say right up front, is one, is my second favorite character in Persona 4, which means that she is one of my favorite characters in any fictional story ever. Yeah. I fucking love Chie. I don't even know where to begin. I, I'm like I am like blinded for my love of this character. I think she's just such a great character. But I mean, can you describe her? I I don't know. I'm I'm okay, not eloquent. Sure. Yeah, so Chie is sort of She's, like, the third character you really beat in the game, so she's one of the very early ones. And basically, she's sort of, like, to put her in an archetype, she sort of fills the tomboy role. Yeah. You know, she's got short brown hair, and she's... Like, I think, to me, the things that stick out the most about Chia's personality, and why I fell in love with her, is she's into kung fu movies oh, yeah. and steak. Yeah. That's awesome. Yes. She loves her steak. I've, I've never met a girl who likes kung fu movies before. Yeah. Not, not once in my life. And not even just like likes them, you know. She 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 quotes Bruce Lee movies and shit sometimes. Yeah. That's Don't think, feel. Exactly. And yeah, the I think that's one of the things that's really endearing about her. And then she's also 
It's, yeah, it's kind of hard to just like describe Chie in a nutshell. Yeah. But yeah, she's she's very sort of energetic. She doesn't yeah. sort of like you know spend a lot of time thinking about what she's going to do. She just uh, she decides what she's going to do. She's going to go do it, and she's just really peppy, happy, energetic all the time. But she's also very caring about her friends. Yeah, I I just yeah I love the hell out of this character. I as you said, just the thing of her loving kung fu movies, loving to train. And, and, of course, that all plays in her side persona in the dungeon, where she just kicks the shit out of people. She yeah, is a super yeah. powerful physical fighter, and she has this one move. Like, every character has a move, sort of an assistance move. If you get, like, a critical hit, they can come in yeah. and get another one on another enemy that's not down yet. And hers is the galactic punt. And the galactic punt, she just goes, all right, I'm ready, and then runs in, and what Yeah, what Kicks the enemy, and they go flying out, and they're dead. Yeah, yeah, she has the best follow-up attack. Where she just straight up kicks a dude out of the fucking battle arena yes. and kills them. Yeah. It is so fucking cool. Yeah, Chie is like, usually I don't, I, I've always kind of find it really implausible and ridiculous in JRPGs when you have, because there is always the character that does not use a weapon. Yeah. It's like everybody's got like a sword or a gun or something and there's the one person who just runs up and punches them. Chie is the one, I totally believe that. Chie yes, would just yes. run up and kick the shit out of some shadows. Leave footprints all over their face, as she would say. Oh, absolutely. And uh, what what else would you say about Chie, sort of just from a description side? I mean, I, I think that kind of that just about covers it. Yeah, you know, yeah. For like in a gameplay sense, she she plays the role of your sort of frontline fighter. She has a lot of very powerful physical attacks. Her most powerful attack she gets that I absolutely adore is called God's Hand, where <laughs> when you it costs like a hundred and fifty HP, or at least it did for me to sell them to use it, and it just basically summons a giant golden hand above whatever enemy you selected, and it just falls and crushes them. And for me, did about, on average, 300 damage just, like, without any buffs per enemy, which is pretty fucking ridiculous. Yeah. But, yeah. It's pretty great. And so I guess uh, the main thing I'll say about Chie that I think endeared her to me so immediately is that... Uh, do you know the name of her voice actress in The Golden? Uh, she's not in the Golden. Okay. Anyway, it is they, they did recast her for the Golden. I've never heard her original voice, so I can just speak to this voice. But that voice, the, the actress who plays her, does such a good job, sinks into that character so entirely. And all, all the voices do this in yeah. Persona 4, but I think Chie, maybe especially, where I just, I can't imagine an actual human being doing that voice. I just see Chie when I hear it. I just, yeah. That's who it is. She just is, inhabits that character so completely, has the energy down, the youthful sort of nature. She is, you know, a young girl. There's, there's not trying to make her sound older than she really is. Yeah. And just, but also sort of the warmth and intelligence and, and love she has for other people. And she can play any tone because Chie is mostly very peppy, optimistic. Yeah. But there are scenes where she can obviously, she has, she's sad or dark things happen. She's really good in those scenes. Um, you know, when Nanako's sick at the end, Chie is sort of the person who gets very emotional on the team over it. She's great in those scenes. It's just it's such a phenomenal vocal performance. And I, I just, that's one of the reasons why I just absolutely adored that character right off the bat. And I think, I also think she's one of the characters with the most, one of the most interesting visual designs. Like, I think yeah. there's something very iconic about how she looks to she, me. She always wears green. Yeah. And she's just, I don't know, she's a character who... The, the amount she just loves the people around her, and especially Narukami, is very infectious. I think it's a two-way street. You kind of you kind of fall in love with Chie playing this game because she's she puts herself out there. Yeah. And it's it's something that I don't know if I've ever seen in a game quite as good an example of that, of a character that you are just... You, they want you to be friends with on yeah. a level that goes beyond just being friends with her in the game. You kind of feel like you know this person. 
Yeah, yeah, Chie, like, I think this goes with all the characters, is really three-dimensional and really well-realized. And yeah, for me, I've got, a, I've got a very interesting relationship with Chie, because as you said, uh, she had a different voice actor in the original game, and so I've gone through with both versions, and I mean, I, I, I really like both of the voice actresses. I, like, I think the golden version, and she's also the one who plays a character in Persona 4 Arena, is... I would say better than the one in the original Persona 4, but I still really love the original Chie too. Yeah. Like, it's it's hard for me to really just say, like, you know, Chie's better or the other one's better, but I think this version of Chie is more able to sort of capture all the different facets of her personality. The older Chie didn't quite... Didn't have... Couldn't get, like, the angry Chie out as well yeah, as yeah, this yeah. one. But she certainly could get sort of the warmth and caring part. But yeah, yeah, uh, I... I absolutely adore Chie as a character. I think she's... I, I think she executes this sort of tomboy archetype better than any other character I've seen. Like, yeah, yeah. But, like, she's a tomboy, but she's still very much a girl. Like, she's not just... She, you no, know, she's into kung fu movies in stake, but that doesn't mean she doesn't have, like, feminine interests as well. Yeah. And, you know... I forget what I was going to say. Okay. I, I guess about that. Dude, let's talk about the... Uh, uh, social link. Oh, social, social link? Okay. That's what I was just saying really quickly, is that I think she is such a well-realized character at all points in the game that her social link is actually one of the less notable ones in a certain sense. Yeah, yeah, there's like a handful of social links in the game that are more, I guess like I'd call them like bubblegum social links. Like they don't, they're not dealing like with like these really deep emotional issues like yeah, Yosuke yeah. with his issues with Saki and Juness, where but it's more like, you know, they are going through some stuff but it's more like you're there hanging out with them and they're just sort of like thinking things through, but it's not this like really dire sort of situation for them. Yeah, and I actually think Chies is, it's sort of like, it's one you kind of overlook because as I said, she is such a strong character yeah. at all points in the game. It's not like where Yosuke is at his most interesting in his social link. I think that's kind of undeniable in a certain way. But with Chie, I would argue she's most interesting in some cutscenes and things like that. But her social link is still a very good one, very fun. You go, you basically train with her every day. Yeah. But then there's also, I think there are some nice things weaved into the subtext of that social link about her sort of, her all, she has this sort of messiah complex kind of like Narukami, saving people, being stronger, yeah. that kind of plays into that. They go a little bit into her relationship with Yukiko, things like that. It's, it's a very, very fun social link, but it also sprinkles in some of those interesting elements too, even though, as you said, it falls more on the bubblegum side of the social links. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, it's mostly a lot of fun, you just hanging out with Chie. Yeah, yeah. And then it gets into some, like, bullying and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, next character we would talk about is Yukiko, her best yep. friend. Yukiko Amagi, who is the daughter of the owners of the Amagi Inn, which is sort of Inaba's number one destination, hot springs, and yeah. very nice, very nice place when you see it. That is an upscale resort. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. 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 And Yukiko is sort of, she's introduced as sort of like the pretty girl at Inaba High. She's a really, really smart person and she's really caring, and she's a great human being, but sort of, like, when you first meet her, you see that a lot of, like, the boys in school, she kind of has this issue of... Um, yeah, all, all the boys hit on her. She's kind of aloof because of that. Yeah, they, they kind of... She's she's encountered so many pigs in her life at Inaba High, she is kind of aloof because of that. Yeah, and she's, and she's also incredibly sort of naive to, yes. like, that side of things, to the romance yeah. side. Like, she does not realize when people are hitting on her, but and she's sort of just uncomfortable in social situations. Yeah, 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 and and I like that. Like all the uh, guys have this thing they call the Amagi Challenge, trying to like score a date with Yukiko. Yeah, it's 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 sort of very true to high school. Yes, that that part of it. 
But Yukiko is another great character. Really love yeah. Yukiko. She's the first one, first teammate you get who has been thrown into the TV. Yeah. So you encounter her shadow in like the most dramatic of situations. Right, and and it's a fucking terrifyingly hard boss. <laughs> For playing, you, maybe. The first time I played, you said it was hard too. Yeah, but I, I, I think I had an easier time of it than you. But okay, anyway, but. In any case, so Yukiko, sort of, what's what's sort of her shadow challenge? Like, what's her big issue in this game she's overcoming? Uh, like, for her, it's that she has been locked in, basically, to inherit the Yamagi Inn. It's, it's a, sort yeah. of a very Japanese lineage type thing, particularly with, like, the end of that, you know, she's yeah. Yukiko Amagi, she's going to be the next head of the Amagi household, and she's going to be the one who runs the inn, and that's sort of been decided for her, or at least she feels it's been decided for her. And so yeah. her... And even though, like, through her social link, you eventually come to discover that she actually really loves the Amagi Inn, and that is where she wants to be, but this sense of that that's already been decided for her, she feels like she's been, she's trapped, you know? Like, you know, obviously the, uh, her shadow takes on, when she denies her shadow, it takes on the form of a giant bird that's trapped in a small cage. Yeah. And that's very much how she feels. Yes. And, you know, this is sort of a key difference, I think, between Japanese and American storytelling is that... Over the course of Yukiko's social link, which is a lot about her internal debate of whether or not she wants to leave Inaba and try to strike out on her own or stay and manage the inn, is that I think the American version of that story is she would strike out and yeah. leave and rebel. And this story is about her coming back around to realize that she should, for family honor or personal satisfaction or whatever you want to call it, she is going to stay in Inaba. She does love this inn. She is going to continue her family's legacy. And it's done really, really well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And then the other facet of, like, her whole shadow stuff, and this ties into Chie, we kind of have to talk about this, like, relationship between them as a pair, because both of their shadows deal with their relationship to, with each other, because the other part of Yukiko is, you know, when, when she when she gets thrown to the TV, and then, like, the real Midnight Channel thing comes on of, like, her shadow actually sort of, like, putting on this little program, is that she's putting on this hunt for her, like, Prince Charming, basically. Yeah. How her shadow projects this to this sense that she wants not only does she feel trapped but she wants to be saved by someone like how you'd always see on a tv show or in a book or something like that she wants to be saved by some like really charming guy who comes in and rescues her and and i think part of that is like yukiko in her real life is a little bit frustrated that that doesn't happen for her ever and that chie is sort of supposed to fill that fulfill that role for her that like because Chie is very strong and Chie is very outgoing and sort of the extrovert of the two of them but Yukiko doesn't necessarily feel like Chie has fulfilled that promise because yeah. Chie is not necessarily encouraging her to break out on her own and to not be the next successor to the Magi Inn and and the other like in the flip side of that is for Chie Chie is like has this really close relationship with Yukiko but she recognizes that on both sides of that relationship, it's somewhat parasitic. Like, like Yukiko is relying on Chie's strength to sort of, like, help her through her issues, and Chie is sort of relying on Yukiko needing her to sort of, like, justify Chie's attitude and Chie's, like, putting herself out there like that. Like, Chie's shadow puts on this uh, form of being basically like a dominatrix that she's... She's using other people for her own pleasure. And, and for all of the shadows, that's not really how the characters feel. It is like this like extreme exaggeration of like their, their true repressed selves. But when confronted with that, they, they really can't take that like even a part of that is inside of them. And I think and that's one of the things I really like about these two characters and like this, that section of the game is is seeing that type of like examination of what a friendship is much more honestly than than 
things tend to do, particularly anime-type things, have you know tend to have very cliche, like we're going to defeat you with the power of friendship. It kind of happens in Persona 4. But I, I like this sense of that your relationship with people is give and take. That is yeah. not necessarily all, like, rainbow, sunshine, happy. That, that you are, even if, even if it is for the benefit of both of you, if you are in a relationship with anybody, you are using them in some sense. And you have to sort of realize when you're doing that and make sure you're not doing it in an overly parasitic way, that you're not hurting them by using them. Yeah. And that you rely on each other's strengths instead of exploiting each other's weaknesses for your own personal gain. Yeah. And that's a relationship that is a lot of fun to watch play out over the rest of the game, too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so Yukiko, I think the other notable thing about Yukiko is she, her personality is just a ton of fun throughout yeah. the game. She's another one of my just absolute favorite characters. And she's just got a lot of interesting ticks where she's mostly a very calm, collected, sort of quiet person, a little aloof, as you said. Yeah. But her sense of humor is kind of fucking hilarious because she finds really stupid shit really fucking funny. And so there will be scenes where Teddy will make a... Well, she never laughs at Teddy's puns. Some, yeah. Once in a while. Once in a great while. But mostly something stupid will happen, and she will start laughing uncontrollably. And at least in English, the actress who does that does a great fucking job. It's really yeah. funny whenever yeah. it happens. Yeah, it's, it's too often that you see sort of, you know, like, when voice acting, like, the really awkward laughs. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. she pulls it off. And, yeah, I, and I do like that, that she's not... Like, as this goes for all the characters, that they're not necessarily just... In this very like, it, like when you first meet them, it always feels like they are occupied this very simple role. Like it feels like Yosuke is the like the male comic relief, like best friend character, and that's like just all he is. Or Chie is just the tomboy. Or Yukiko is just the pretty girl. And it's like, and one of the things that I really like about Yukiko's character is that, and this also is very true to like my high school experience, knowing a lot of people in high school, was that Yukiko gets the best grades, but she is. Like to use you know a negative term, she's an airhead. Like she, she's very naive. She she laughs at just dumb stuff. She while she gets good grades, she's not necessarily really really smart. Not to say she's dumb, yeah. but she's not like the smartest kid on the block. She's not Naoto. Yeah, and 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 I just I like that. I I, I like the affirmation. It's like no, if you get good grades, it has nothing to do with how smart you are. Yeah, but Yukiko really is just a very endearing character. She's probably one of the more good-hearted, like, just, yeah. it's very easy-to-love characters in all the game. Yeah. And uh, I just, I really, really love Yukiko, love that actress. But she also has some this, of the, the, the darkest stuff. That's what I was to say. Yeah. She has a dark side. Yeah, she has this really sort of very serious, very strict part of her personality that I think very much comes from a very sort of, like, traditional Japanese innkeeper sort of image. And when it comes out, it's fucking great. It, it is It is really hilarious. There's The a, defining moment is one with Teddy, yeah. where... What is Teddy doing in that scene? It's when they're all they're at the culture festival and yes. they've all been sort of like roped into being in this beauty pageant that they don't want to be in. And Teddy is asking them very, very personal questions. And Yukiko just is, gets fed up with it and he just says, that bear needs to be disappeared. I wish we had that on hand to play. It's such a great line reading. It's yeah. so fun. That was one of those ones where the golden edition has this great little feature where you can, in, a, in any cutscene, hit select and go back and listen to all the lines. Yeah. And I just probably listen to that line like over and over yeah. and over because that bear needs to be disappeared. It's awesome. There's another line like that, that I'm really fond of earlier on where they're in this camping trip and Chie and Yukiko are in <laughs> yes. a, a tent with this other character, Hanako, who's sort of like this big fat girl. And Hanako's snoring really loudly and they, they and Chie and Yukiko can't get to sleep. And Yukiko just says, if I covered her mouth and nose, do you think she would stop snoring? <laughs> it's I, a great line. It, it's just, it's, yeah. Yukiko has a lot of really great moments like that. Yeah, she's a great character. And 
Anything else to say about her for now? I mean, as far as, like, mechanically speaking in the game, she oh, also yeah, yeah. serves as your primary spellcaster. And one of the things that I like about sort of how the combat works in this game is that she's got the highest magic stat, and that so that means... But she also gets uh, all the best healing spells, so you can actually use her character in two very different ways, where she's... If you use her as a damage dealer, she deals more damage than any of, of the other, like, sort of, like, partner characters in the game because she has the highest magic stat and she gets very powerful uh, fire spells. But then also she's multifaceted in that she's also a very effective healer. So yeah. I think mechanically in the game she also is very interesting. Sort of, I've, I've never not had her in my party. Right, me she's too. Probably she's probably the most useful. She's really great to have. I mean, I use her primarily as a healer, I guess. But she, uh, yeah, I also use her for fire when I need her because, man, yeah. she's, she can... Bring the bring the pain. She's good. Yeah. So, one last thing to mention about Yukiko. So when you go oh, to the, when you go into the TV world in Persona Four, you, Teddy gives you these glasses because there's a lot of fog, and you see through the fog, you wear these magical glasses. The real reason is that because you look fucking cool with the glasses on. Yeah. And when Yukiko put those glasses on, holy crap! Yukiko is incredibly hot wearing those glasses. Like, and I don't know if anyone else thinks this, but. I just remember... It's nothing but, like, the glasses in particular. Like, I, I, I find Yukiko's design very attractive, but it's not yeah. like the glasses are like, oh, oh, whoa, it's not like the, like, you know, that, like, teen movie where you have the nerd girl who's actually really hot, and then she, like, puts her hair down, and everybody recognizes that she's really hot. It's not like that for me. It's kind of like that for me, where I saw Yukiko, and I'm like, that's a really nice design, she's very well drawn, and, and I, I think she's Sort of, like, very... captures that very traditional Japanese beauty, sort of yeah, yeah. look like very fair skin, long black hair. Yeah, but god fucking damn it, she puts those glasses on, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I thought it was just, it was really funny, because when that happened for you, you, like, started talking to me, and you're like, you know, Sean, I've never really been, like, understood how people can be really, like, sexually attracted to animated characters before, but when Yukiko put her glasses on, and it's like, and before you said when Yukiko put her glasses on, I had no fucking clue where that conversation was going to go. I yeah. was, it was getting really uncomfortable. Just like because you know, I you know, I will fully freely admit I'm like sexually attracted to animated characters. Like that's not. I don't think that's weird. I think that's I didn't like say it's it was weird. psychologically normal. But it's just like when someone sits you down and says. I've never understood how someone could be sexually attracted to animated characters before. That's a weird conversation you feel like you're about to have. I'm I, glad I it did not go in, like, really strange directions, like, it, it, it as normally like, as it possibly could. But I didn't, like, say, I discovered hentai or something. Yeah, it was like, I want this, it's like, I, but, you know, I from Amazon Japan, I ordered a giant, like, 2D cutout of a naked anime girl or something. Like, yeah, yeah. that was, like, the worst way that conversation could go. Like, I have to tell you, he's like, Jonathan, you can't put that up in the condo. Yeah. I was not trying to say, it's weird to be, I was just like, that never happened to me before. Then I saw Yukiko with her glasses. That, that's fucking great. Okay. Fucking well, let's great. move on from that now. Yes. To a, another one of just the, the great Persona characters. Yeah. Kanji. Kanji, Kanji Tatsumi. Tatsumi. He's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. This, to, again, like, sort of one of the main themes of all the characters, at least the main characters in Persona, is to sort of, like, circumvent stereotype. That because it's one of the main themes is that everybody judges everyone else at total face value, and that sort of is what causes a lot of that repression of their personalities that then causes the shadows to come out. And for Kanji, the stereotype, what he looks like at face value, is he is the you know stereotypical Japanese school delinquent. Like he doesn't go to school. He's got bleached hair. He's like his. He keeps his uniforms all fucked up. Like he he has it like wrapped over his shoulders instead of wearing it properly. He's extremely disrespectful. He's got like a scar. Everybody believes he's somehow running this biker gang because he did actually beat the shit out of a biker gang. 
And that's sort of how you're introduced to him, is that he is this tough guy. This is like, that is all he is, is that he is this delinquent, which is yeah. a character, you, if you watch a lot of anime, is in like fucking everything. Yeah. But Kanji is, winds up being one of the most complicated, hilarious, warm, and lovable creations pretty much in any anime ever. Yeah, yeah, and, and a huge part of that is his voice actor, Troy Baker. Yeah. Fucking amazing. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah, I, I think of all the vocal performances, he's near the top for me, and I think like he's able to nail the serious moments, but then also when he has to deliver a funny line, he is able to pull off a funny line better than any of the voice actors in the game, I think. Yeah, he's definitely, my, my top three would be him, Chie, and, and Naoto when we get to her. That's just, he, he's great. Troy Baker's great. And Kanji, I mean, sort of, so, so the main sort of issue you're introduced to Kanji through once he goes, once he's kidnapped, put in the TV world, and yeah. you see him on the Midnight Channel, is, is this issue of sexuality, where he, it's sort of like hinting at, or not even hinting at in this part, but it's very, this is sort of about repressed homosexuality for a long part yeah. of the game, where, where you're rescuing him because, you know, for instance, the dungeon you go to rescue him in is the bad, bad bathhouse. It's sort yeah. of like these, these issues of sexual identity that are sort of coming out in this wildly overblown gay stereotype. Yeah, yeah, like his shadow personifies the gay stereotype. Like, that, that, is, yeah. that is his shadow. Yeah. And, and, and we should say, before all this happens, Kanji, like, start, like talks to Naoto some, like, Naoto's trying to investigate the crimes too, and talks to Kanji, and, you know, Naoto's actually a girl, but is trying to, like, put on this facade that she's a guy, and so Kanji's is sexually attracted to her, thinking that she's a guy, and so that sort of, like, sets off his, like, extreme confusion about his own yeah. sexuality, and, like, and everybody else, it's actually a really funny sequence where everyone else is sort of accidentally saying things that is making Kanji believe that they're thinking that he's gay, and yeah. Kanji sort of, like, can't handle that accusation. Yeah. And so one of the most interesting things about Kanji, and I think they handle it over the arc of the game with a really delicate and very, very intelligent hand, is that it, it's never made clear whether or not, you know, is he gay, is he straight, and I actually don't I think, think Kanji does not know the answer to that no. question. No, and that's what's the thing, is that that's not important. It's that yeah. there, there is just this idea of, of sexual identity being something that, you know, for this character is lucid in a certain way and is not nailed down and he's not sure of, but he yeah. lives in a society where he's supposed to be very sure of it mm -hmm. and, and there really isn't even a thing like sexual identity in many cases. It's just, you know, you are straight, that's just how it yeah. goes. And he is not sure of that and that lack of, of clarity for him is something that's very tough for him to, to get and that's why he has one of the most interesting arcs because even once, you know, he accepts his persona and all that, he's got a long ways to go. Yeah. In, and that really is something that continues all the way through the game, through his social link and through everything else you do with him. And I think that's that's why he has one of the most compelling character arcs in the game. Yeah, I agree. Like, the other... The, I think what is really the main facet of it, because the homosexuality thing is sort of... I mean, really, on Kanji's part, like, whether or not he's homosexual or not, like, that is sort of a misunderstanding on his own part of his yeah, own yeah. feelings. Like, what it really is for Kanji and what Kanji represents for me is his issues are more with gender stereotyping in society and sexism yeah, yeah. in that sense, where, like, because, you know, everybody's, like, he puts on this facade of being this very tough guy, but really Kanji has what you would say are really uh, typically feminine interests, particularly sewing. Yeah. And he really likes really cute things. Like whenever he's with Teddy, he wants to pet Teddy's fur all the time because it looks so soft. Yeah. And so he's got all these very feminine interests, but he's also, you know, he's... But that is not to say that he's a very feminine guy. Like, he's still no, very yeah. masculine. Like, the whole, like, him being a tough guy is not just a facade. Like, that is part of who he is. Yeah. But yeah, he but he has all these like typically feminine interests, and he's sort of been he was bullied a lot when he was a kid because of that. And so it's, 
and particularly by women, and he sort of is kind of afraid of women because of that. Like, he, he, he can't get along with women. He's very nervous around them because they treat him so poorly because of his uh, personal interests. And so, and that sort of, like, makes him question his own sexuality in that way. Yeah. And it's just a really, I mean, yeah, as you said, just gender roles. It's a very interesting part of his character. And I think in many ways it gets more interesting as the game goes along and you learn more about him and his interests and how he works within yeah. this world and his past. And how he feels about Naoto. Is yeah, like, yeah. I think that's like this really complex relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Which luckily, you know, his senpai, Narukami, just takes it out of his hands and just dates yeah. Naoto himself. Yeah. And it's like, sorry, Kanji, but you're too slow on the draw. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's too slow on the draw with Narukami yeah, around. No kidding. But, yeah, I mean, Kanji is such a great character. As you said, Troy Baker is so good, and I think it's there's really no other character in this game who you can feel so wildly sympathetic for and have such a massive emotional attachment for who will then turn around and make you laugh your ass off. Yeah, yeah, he's really funny. And he's also, I mean, this is the other thing that I think actually plays into a lot of characters, but especially Kanji, is he's a kid. And yeah. age is yeah, very... He, and he's, he's uh, the first one you run into, he's 15 years old. Like, he's yeah, yeah. one year younger than all the other kids, than the main group. Yeah, and he very much is a kid, and there's a lot of things with him, like he just, you know, he loves his topsicles. Part of why he's interested in Teddy is also because, again, he's just young, yeah. and all these things. But he looks really old, because yeah, it's yeah. just like he grew up, like he's like, like a foot taller than everybody else on the investigation team. It's always yeah. really funny when you get the animated cutscenes, yeah, and so you get that perspective, you're like, Kanji's a tall fucking dude, Jesus! Yeah. So sort of this, these issues of gender in relation to age also, I think, informs what a complex character he is. Yeah, yeah. It is always really important to keep in mind that all the characters are teenagers. They're all yeah. in high school. And that's, that's part of, like, one of the reasons it's so... Like, it kind of has to be that way because it's sort of looking at, you know, you trying... Everybody trying to figure out who they really are as you... They inevitably have to when you become an adolescent. Yeah. So... Well, let's say about Kanji. He is not a character you or I use in the dungeons. Yeah, because he's... The first one you get after you have, because you can have four people in your party, including yourself, at any given time. So he's the first one you get where you have this choice of, do I stick with the people I've been using already, or do I throw him into the mix? And the core tr- the core trio of like extra people you can have in your party works so well together that I just never really threw Kanji in there. Yeah. But, you know, his, his persona it has very strong, uh, very high strength stat. It uh, uses uh, lightning spells. So if Narukami did not want to pull lightning duty, you can throw Kanji in there. But I think the, the, the most interesting thing in sort of the combat section of the game about Kanji is that his weapon is basically, you either have like a big fucking folding chair, like wrestler style, or just a big slab of wood or metal or something, and you just smack shit with it. And that's it. Like, the, there's no elegance, no grace... He just fucking hits stuff with other stuff, and that is his combat style. And that's kind of awesome. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Very true to his character. Yeah. So, but in any case, we still love Kanji. I like seeing him in the dungeon when you just run into him on a random floor and he's yeah. sitting there waiting. Just hanging out with Teddy or Fox. Yeah. So, Kanji's pretty cool. Anything else to say about him? Uh, I don't uh, Like, I think one of the other things that I like he sort of serves is that when seeing things, seeing things get really dire in the later sections of the game... Kanji is sort of one of the more proactive ones. I mean, he, sort of in a violent way, but, you know, he, he has some nice scenes where he holds dudes up by their collars and yells at them in their face. Yeah. Uh, that was like... And I also forgot to mention, and I think we'll talk about sort of favorite social links and stuff later, but he his social link is one of my absolute favorites. It would be in my top five. I think it's really fucking good. And especially his ninth, his, like, penultimate social link event, 
where he kind of, you kind of tile together his his sewing and it's like he's making these dolls for kids, but also coming back to his own gender issues and age issues, and they tie it all together. There's just just one fantastic scene with him that is one of my favorites in the game. Troy Baker yeah. hits it out of the park. Yeah, he's got all these because through the social link, like this is not hinted at in the main game, but through social link, he discovered that his father died when he was like a little yeah. kid, and so that's also part of what made him adopt this very stereotypically masculine image is because he is only living with his mom and he's very protective of his mom and so that's yeah. sort of like motivated that for him yeah he is he's just a great character yeah so your next teammate is Risei Kujikawa yes he's a glamour idol pop idol I don't what's the idol is really just the term they use yeah, in Japan yeah. it's and idol. it's do you want to explain what an idol is to our listeners because there's really no I mean the equivalent. closest thing is how Britney Spears was in her heyday you know yeah. they, they, they put out music they also like do some acting and stuff like that but I think honestly like one of the biggest things is they just have like magazines that are just like their photo shoots and that kind yeah. of thing it's yeah they're just like they're very sort of disposable they're just like you know the Japanese idol industry just like chews through them like crazy and, yeah, they just, you know, they're basically pop idols, you know, like yeah. fucking back, Backstreet Boys, almost. Yeah. That sort of thing, where it's like, you know, really bubblegum, not great music, but, you know, the, every, like, for their demographic, everybody fucking loves them. Well, like, it's, for it's, Backstreet Boys, it's girls, for Issei, it would be guys. Yeah, and it's a crossover thing where it's like, you know, music, TV shows, movies, commercials, yeah. photo shoots, as you said, models. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's a very big thing in Japan, and you see it in a lot of Japanese fiction. Yeah. But Risei is an idol... Who you actually see her in the first cutscene of the game yeah. proper? Um, you, you see her tits first, and then it zooms out, and it turns out she's yeah, she's, doing she's, that. she's in a, a commercial for something called Calorie Magic. It's like yes. a diet thing, and she's like in a bikini. Yeah, is how you're introduced to this character at the beginning of the game. But then many hours later, uh, Risei winds up moving back to Inaba because that is where her family lives, and she's decided to take a break from being an idol. And you 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 have a hunch that she's going to be targeted as the next person to be thrown into the TV. So you're kind of investigating her. And you meet Risei, and she's very different than who you would think an idol would be like. And this is a pretty fascinating part of the game. Yeah, I'd say Risei is one of my favorite characters of the whole game. I think, like, yeah. as far as sort of presenting a multifaceted person, I think Risei does that better than any of the other characters. And she's also kind of just about that in yes. her social link when you go through it with her. But yeah, when you first, when you meet her in real life, she is very sort of depressed, she's very dour, she has, like, no energy whatsoever, like, she's the exact opposite of what she was when you were introduced to her in that commercial. And, and it's a really good part of the game, and then, you know, you, you obviously, I mean, her and her issues are sort of what you would I- expect in this part, you know, you get into the TV, and it's, it's, again, sort of about sexuality and the body, and also, you know, insecurity and in these things, yeah. when you confront her shadow, it's a very, it's another dungeon sort of like Kanji's that's very much about sexuality. Yeah, yeah, but it's sort of like because her, you know, her shadow form is sort of like in this like big bikini when it takes on it's like fully shadowed after it's denied, it's sort of like this big stripper on a pole. Yeah. And yeah, it's very much her insecurities are all about how she's been so overly sexualized and everybody looks at her in that way and it sort of pigeonholed her as her idol identity of reset instead of reset and that she can't. She feels like she's completely distinct from that. Like, she feels like she's completely putting on this show and nobody's able to sort of approach what she's really like because of her idol identity, and that's what motivates all the sort of psychological trauma in the dungeon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so so really fascinating issues there, and the actress who plays Risei is one of the most sort of prominent voice actresses in the American voicing industry, yeah. Laura Bailey, and it is another one of those performances that is just fucking phenomenal. Yeah, because this character in particular goes through 
like so much emotional range like she can be extremely depressed one second and then you know right in your face really bubbly energetic the next second and she she pulls that off really marvelously yeah i think laura bailey has more challenge here than maybe anyone else in the game in terms of just getting so many sides of this character and it being a character that is i think tough to do in english yeah it's sort of a very automatic vocabulary for that in Japanese and a way to do that. And I think in English you, you have to sort of emulate that but also add your own spin to it. And Laura Bailey does that just phenomenally. Yeah, in Japanese the the voice actress for Risei is a woman called Rie Kugamiya. Yeah. Who she is in, if you watch any anime made in like, since like 2004, she, Rie Kugamiya is in there somewhere. Yeah, she is most notable to a lot of people as Alphonse Elric in the Full Metal Alchemist anime. Yeah. And she, she's played just like fucking dozens and dozens and dozens of roles. But, yeah. and that is like, and that is such an anime, anime, anime voice. Like, that's one of the reasons yeah. she gets very typecast is because she has just this anime voice. And yeah, it is really impressive that Laura Bailey, and Laura Bailey doesn't even give, actually gives a very different performance yes. as Risei. And it's, it's very interesting mm-hmm. that, like, that she's able to find this other side to the character and bring that out with her performance. Yeah, it's really good. And I think she's, you know, uh, she's another character who I think gets even more fascinating as just the game goes along and you do her social link and you see how she reacts to all these scenarios in the game proper. And it's just, it's it's really, really just a great character, I think. You know, and then she also becomes, from a mechanical standpoint, you hear her voice a lot because she becomes, she replaces Teddy as your in-dungeon guide character. Yeah. Yeah, so when you have to, like, analyze an enemy's weakness or something like that, she pipes up and is like, you know... Use wind, it'll blow them away, or it's some dumb pun like that. Yeah, she's talking to you all the time in the dungeons, and then in the real game, she's a very talkative character. She's totally in love with her senpai, Narukami, yeah. which is kind of awesome. That just speaks to how great Narukami is, that this fucking beautiful pop idol comes to town and loves Narukami immediately. Yeah, yeah, you know, because everybody went into that dungeon to rescue her. She's only got pots for uh, fucking Narukami. Sorry, Yosuke. He dealt the killing blow. Yeah. He's, Narukami's the man. But... Risei, I don't know, what else should we say about her? Uh, do you want to like, talk about her social link stuff? Yeah, yeah, she's, think, she's got one of the best social yeah. links. I think for me, what her social link sort of comes to symbolize is that she realizes that one, she, like, kind of similar to Yukiko, she actually did, really did love being in the idol industry. Like, there's some stuff of it, like the over-sexualization that she did not like, but, but that is what she wants to do. Like, she wants to be a part of that. She wants to sort of be in showbiz. That's what she's really good at. And it's sort of like, that's the first half of her social link is sort of trying to come to realize that. And, sort of, and that part culminates in what is, in this version, a completely heartbreaking scene. Because in the original game, they're like the... Social link events were not fully voice acted, and, and it, but for the Golden, sort of a lot of the very critical uh, social link events for the main cast are fully voice acted, like the whole scenes. And there's this one scene with Risei where when she realizes that she made a huge mistake in like trying to quit the idol business, and she re- realizes that she's almost lost everything that she actually wants, she completely breaks down and starts crying, which is a really sad scene in the original game. But having it be completely voice acted by Laura Bailey, that's a fucking hard scene to watch. It is. Basically, I mean, her manager comes to town and and does this dick move of telling Risei how she's like the best idol he's ever seen. Yeah, after she's already quit. Yeah, and he never said that to her before. And yeah, Laura Bailey hits that out of the fucking park. That's great. But then also just, yeah, this this idea of synthesis of identity, which is such a major theme of Persona 4, and it's so personified by uh, Risei, of, of accepting that Reset is her and Reset is Risei. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that she... And this sort of rings true to how I sort of view a lot of things, is that you don't have this very strict, singular personality. That, that yeah. is not what a human being is. That you have... Like, whether you want to call it a multifaceted personality or effectively multiple personalities, so it's like multiple sides to yourself, you are not a singular whole being like the way other people see you. Yeah. And Rise sort of... She's she's the one who sort of like looks like looks at it that way, approaches it that way. That there are a lot of different versions of sort of herself, and that she's going to constantly be changing through them, and that's totally okay. It's and they are all her. Yeah. At the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. yeah. That there's yeah that she's not lying to herself when she's being reset when she's on stage, and she's not lying to herself when she isn't on stage. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Rise is also crucial to one of the games, one of the Golden's best sort of additions, which is the rock band scene, yeah. where to save Juness, you and your friends have to band together to do a big show, rock show. And, and Rise, luckily, a pop idol had moved into town about a month before. Yeah, and, and became and, friends with her. And luckily, Rise has a good song to use, and she, she still, she can you know instruct you all on how to do it. But it's it's this song called True Story that's really fun. You get a great anime cutscene, yeah. and it, it's fun because uh, you get to hear Laura Bailey sing the song, and she does a really yeah. good job. At yeah, it. it was it was nice to see them like translate the song and have like yeah. actually have Laura Bailey sing it, and I like yep. that. So. Uh, but they did not translate Teddy in that scene. Yeah, yeah. So they, there's like one little sequence where Teddy goes "hello," and it, it is it is very clearly Japanese Teddy. Like yes. you know, they, Japanese Teddy and English Teddy are have very different voices. Yes, because I don't think you could do the English equivalent of Japanese Teddy. Yeah, no. But speaking of that, let's move on to Teddy. Like he's he's sort of the next character you pick up in your team. That's uh, true because he and Arise kind of share a boss fight in a yeah, certain sense. Yeah. So anyway, Teddy. Fuck, where do you start with this? Teddy? This is sort of the hardest character because he is the most, like, sort of, he's the supernatural character of the group, really. So Teddy is, at, when you first meet him, just this empty bear costume. And even then, he doesn't really look like a bear. He yeah, just, it's just like this sort of, like, mascot sort yeah. of, you know, he just seems like he, he almost kind of looks like a Pokemon kind of thing. Yeah. Um, he's, he's very chipper. Very cheerful, but he's very worried about all this shit going on in his TV world. At first, he doesn't tr- entirely trust you know, Narukami and Yosuke, but then he sees what Narukami can do in action. He falls in love, too, and, and yeah, Narukami is his sensei. sensei. Yeah. Yep. And, Which pees off Yosuke, because yeah. it's like, you know, he d- doesn't give Yosuke any sort of honorific at all. Yeah. And at first, you just think Teddy is sort of like this, you know, kind, nice-hearted, you know, bear mascot character who's just kind of be this goofy side character. But you learn more about him, and then you learn more about him, yeah. and then he grows a body, and then inside turns... of his empty bear suit, he grows a human body, and then you find out he's kind of a fucking perv, and then yeah. like Teddy just becomes more and more and more complex as the game goes yeah. along, and is is a fucking great character. Yeah, and he is sort of the hardest character to explain because most of the game for like his character story arc is trying to figure out what the fuck he is. Because yeah. he doesn't know. He's lost his memories. He's just sort of this creature that was living in the TV world. He sort of he knows a lot about the TV world, but not everything. And, the, and at the beginning of the game, before you get reset, he sort of serves as your guide to help you analyze enemies and that sort of part. But yeah, like over the course of the game, he slowly starts becoming more and more human to the point where he literally grows a human body inside of him. And then his human body wears his like discarded fucking shell of a bear costume like Teddy's like if we like when you really think about it Teddy's really gross like that like that scene where he grows a body inside of himself and just like sort of like appears it's like what the fuck how what is that how did he do that yeah the game 
never really explains well, that What's great is that he he's like, in this one scene, he decides to help you beat this enemy, so he kind of like goes super teddy and yeah. like just blows the enemy apart, but then he's like flattened out and charred, yeah. and so you leave the TV world, and he's like, alright, I'll do sit here and do push-ups, and when you know, you yeah. or pull-ups, and when you guys come back, I'll be fit again, and then when you meet him the next time, turns out all his working out, that was him growing a body. Yeah. That's inside of himself. Really creepy. Yes. So, yeah, Teddy, sort of around the halfway point of the game, yeah, he, uh, you know, he, he's able to travel between worlds with you. In the real world, he's usually his human self, who wear, is really nicely dressed. Yeah, he's got, like, this, like, sort of, like, ruffled shirt yeah. with, like, a fucking a, a rose on his lapel and, like, like black sh- pants. Shining blonde hair, yeah. literally shining, and, like, sparkling blue eyes. He's, like, sort of looks like a prince. Yeah. And, and and so that's that's Teddy. And then, you know, back in the TV world, he always wears his mascot costume. But Teddy is such a great character because he is the funniest character on one level because he's very goofy. He's sort of the comic relief character in most scenarios. Makes a hell of a lot of bear puns. Yes, makes a lot of bear Well, okay, do you want to address this first, the difference between Japanese and English Teddy? Yeah, where sure, that comes from? sure. Let's, let's go into this. So in, in Japanese, like I, I should say, I've watched the entirety of the anime adaptation of the game, and so that's how I, I know like all the Japanese voice acting and stuff, because you can't really get the Japanese version over here that easily. Obviously, it's like there are no, there's no Japanese track on the English game. But, yeah. uh... So in, in Japanese, the Teddy, how that stuff works out, and this is sort of very typical to how this sort of stuff works in Japan, is that instead of, like, what you'd call, like, a, a pun over here, their sort of sense of wordplay, is that, like, his all of his sentences end with him saying, Kuma, which is just Japanese for bear. And so yeah. since he's, and that is his name in Japan, is, is Kuma. He's yeah. just bear. And Do you want me to play a voice clip? Uh, sure, go ahead. From one of these soundtracks from the anime, there's some voice clips on sure, here, and Teddy sure. introduces them. I think this is one. Alright, so you heard yeah. a little Teddy there, that's yeah. what he sounds like. Yeah, so he's got this very sort of like grating high pitch. You know, like he like he is supposed to be this like anime mascot character that is just like there in if when they put those characters into anime, he's just there to sell toys. Like that is what Teddy is. That is what he's yeah. sort of supposed to embody, like symbolize. And so, and I totally recognize that it's like, and it's actually really smart how they do that, knowing what I know about Japan and like seeing the Japanese version of that. It really, it's really well done. But like those, those mascot characters in anime are really fucking annoying. And so like trying to make a version that parodies them by being even more annoying is smart and works well. And then Teddy's voice isn't like that all the time. Like it's, it, you get used to it, but when he tries to be annoying, it's pretty fucking annoying hearing someone go, Sensei Kuma! All the fucking time. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of drives you insane. What's great, too, is that the actor for him in Japanese is Kape Yamaguchi, who is one of sort of the great Japanese seiyu at the moment. He's been in a lot of stuff from, like, he's Tombo and Kiki's Delivery Service to L and Death Note to all sorts of other stuff. He's Usopp in One Piece. He's very, very prominent. Yeah. And it's so funny to hear the guy who played L, the great detective in Death Note, do Teddy. Yeah. Do Kuma. It's just, like, it is, it is kind of terrifying that that dude can do both of those voices because they're yeah. like polar opposites. I think he goes home and talks to his kids like that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, but in English, how they sort of adapt that is... They bear puns! Do, yeah, bear puns. Every opportunity they get since they, obviously, they're not going to end every single sentence with bear because that just does not fly yeah. over here. 
they just stuff in bear puns everywhere, which mm-hmm. I think is a more palatable way of doing that. Yes. It's probably because I'm American, so of course I would think the way to do it in American would be the more palatable way to do it, but... But, yeah, and I think in many ways Teddy is a very, very nuanced character in his American portrayal, and, and uh, again, the, the golden voice actor that I have heard is different from his original Persona yeah. 4 voice. They're, they're very are, similar. Yeah, they're very similar voices. Like, there's not... Like, their performances are not that different. And they're both very, very good. Yeah, yeah. I think Teddy is is a really great character, and uh, particularly I think the way that he's portrayed in English is that he's very sincere in his you know love for other people, in his affection for his friends, especially yeah. Sensei, and all that stuff. But he's also he is a horny fucking bear. Yeah, no kidding. He it's 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 unfortunate that Narukami is around because like you know Teddy just hits on anything and everything that walks. Yes, it's. Kind of creepy at a certain point. Well, especially, and it makes it really troubling when then you introduce him to Nanako, and you're like, yeah. "I don't think I should be doing this. This is not. You should not be with Nanako. She is the sweet little eight year old girl. You just stay the fuck away from him, you pervy fucking bear." <laughs> All right, so Teddy, yeah, he's a, he's a pervy bear. He grows his own body, and you eventually discover that he was a shadow in the TV world who sort of became self aware yeah. and modeled himself off of what he thought people would be comfortable around. And that's yeah, sort yeah of... that's the reason why he looks like one of those very stereotypical mascot characters is because he wants he wanted humans to like him as he developed an ego when he was a shadow. He didn't want to be just this monster, and so he, like, developed this teddy body. And then eventually, but he couldn't sort of handle the fact that he realized that he knew that he was a shadow, so he sort of, like, purposefully, like, deleted his own memories in a sense. Yeah. And I think it's Teddy's such a great character because for all he can be kind of creepy and skeevy and silly, when you get to that realization and you realize what he's kind of been dealing with, that's a really good scene, and it's a very powerful scene. And especially once the stuff with Nanako starts going down, and Teddy is pretty much just serious for a good month, month and a half of that game, um, you know, with, with Nanachan being in the yeah. hospital and stuff, and that he is crucial to saving her in the part where she's in the hospital... Just Teddy does a lot of great stuff in this part. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and one of the things I like about how Teddy functions in sort of like the mythological sense for the Persona games is yeah. that Persona 3 plays a lot with like who and what can have Personas. And it's like they, and like there are a lot of crazy examples of that in Persona 3. Like there's a robot girl and a dog that use Personas. It's like, crazy, but uh, in this I like how it's like, they only have one character that has sort of has a really like, it's weird that they have a persona, but they make it really fucking weird, because sort of mythologically speaking, within the context of the series, a persona and a shadow are the same thing. When you embrace your shadow, it turns into your persona, so the idea of a sh- that a shadow then eventually develops an ego, turns into a human being, and then embraces its own shadow that it then produces from its repressed ego, and then that turns into its persona, Fucking crazy! Like, like it's a really crazy way to play around with your own mythology. And this, yeah. If you're really nerdy about that stuff like me, it's really cool. All right. That's great. So, what else can we say about Teddy? Is that about it for now? I mean, Teddy's a character you could really do a whole podcast on. He is yeah. fascinating. Yeah, he's crazy. Yeah. So, let's finish out the investigation team. We are now going to talk about my personal favorite character in the entirety of Persona 4, and that is Naoto Shirogane, Detective Extraordinaire. Yes, the 2000 IQ Killjoy Detective, as Persona 4 Arena calls her. <laughs> Naoto, I, I also, I, this is another character I feel like I'm too close to to talk about coherently, but, you know, from a plot standpoint, you meet her very a long time before you ever yeah, do anything with her. you meet her when she's talking to Kanji. Yeah, and, and that's when, you know, you're supposed to think she's a boy, 
She's obviously no, no, she's not a boy. But that's I mean that's what you're supposed yeah. to. That's what the game. That's what the characters think. Yeah, and uh, you know she's assisting the police department because while she is young, she's a brilliant detective. She, as we kind of learn, goes from town to town, helps solve mysteries. She's sort. She is actually in that same archetype as Elle from Death Note. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't you know hide her identity to the same degree Elle does. And she's not quite as fucking insane, but she's got issues. Because yeah. her intelligence has kind of gone far beyond her own, in many ways, maturity level. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you finally, when Naoto finally kind of becomes very prominent is when she basically puts herself on TV hoping that she will be kidnapped and prove that the investigation is not over yet and try to find the killer. And that's what happens. You have to go save her in her dungeon and... Um, that's when you find out that shock, shock, she is a woman. What? Yeah. You mean the girl? You mean the 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 person with the sexiest voice in the entire game is actually a girl? Yeah. I have no idea. Yes. Color me shocked. Yep. But I mean, well, let's let's. Why don't you explain this again? What is sort of Naoto's sort of psychological issue she's dealing with that comes out in her dungeon? So so Naoto's kind of got a twofold thing. I think her primary thing is you know obviously. Going around giving everybody intentionally giving everybody the impression that you're a guy for like years is yeah. not exactly the most normal social behavior out there. Yeah, and so short of like part of the thing is that like I don't really want to say that it really goes because like Naoto is not a transgendered character. That is not what this is going for at all. Kind of similarly with like Kanji, it hints at some sort of homosexual stuff, but that's not what it's going for. It's not trying to deal with homosexuality really. This is like really trying to deal with sort of, like, transgendered issues. But but Naoto's sort of repression at her trying to, like, make everybody think that she's a guy, and then Naoto sort of being really... Because the reason why she does that is that she's a detective. That's what she's always wanted to be. She comes from... This is another very Japanese thing. She comes from a very long lineage of detectives. She's, she's the only sort of, like, heir to the Shiragani detective sort of estate. There is no male heir. So she has been encouraged her entire life to take up that profession. And she adores it. That's what she wants to be. She grew up reading detective novels. So she idolizes, you know, people like Sherlock Holmes, who are like, you know, almost all the famous detectives are guys. And so that that whole thing means that when she actually, when she's 15 years old and starts actually working on cases with police because she's basically a genius... That none of that, if she came out as just being this 15-year-old girl, none of the, the police is such a male-oriented society that none of them would take her seriously. And so she's so sort of frustrated with that and being pigeonholed like that, that she can't change, she feels her gender, or she can't just, like, be an adult yet. So, and she's just being treated like a child, being treated like a girl all the time, that she puts on this facade of being a guy. And so that sort of her repressing that part of her personality and sort of be, like, pretending that she's a guy, not because she, like, not in a transgendered sense that she really feels like she's a guy, but just in that just sort of, she's frustrated with, like, how she's being treated in, like, a sexist sense, means that when she goes into the Jadungeon, her shadow sort of puts on this sort of transgender facade of, like, saying, I'm going to, like, actually, I'm going to have this operation, I'm going to be a guy, I'm going to turn myself into an adult male, I'm going to fix these problems that way, because that's what I really want, when that's not what Naoto wants. Yeah, and I, I, 
uh, I want to talk about Naoto here. I think the reason this character in this arc works so incredibly well is, as you said, sexuality is not the focus. In fact, I would say it's a very conscious effort here to make sexuality not the issue. Gender is an issue. Yeah, and, yeah it's sexism. And, and image is an issue, yeah. But it's not about, they're not talking about issues of, of homosexuality, transgendered, anything about that. And they're not saying those aren't important. It's just that's not who this character yeah, that, is. That, yeah, that's not what the game is focusing on. Right. And so Naoto is just a character who, because she is, they do completely non-sexualize her. Yeah. Which is a very, that's a very, I think, most stories don't do that. American or Japanese. Yeah. It's something that, sexuality is such a key way to how we view other people. It's very, very smart of them to be able to do this with Naoto and just view her as a person, and yeah. a person who, for gender, it's almost like a tool that she's trying to use, but that has gotten a little out of hand. Yeah. And that's what's so fascinating, and really what this opens up to, I think, is to a much larger discussion of social image and social pressure and how that deals with repression. And I think Naoto is the clearest example of the game to me to... What, how Persona and this game, how Persona 4 views what repression is from a psychological level. Because it's very much about her denying just the basic, you know, kind of facts about herself because she wants to make this image and she wants to work within this, these societal boundaries and she's not confident enough in herself and who I think what her true view of her identity is to go any further with that. And it's... Yeah. It's a really fascinating arc, and I think, you know, Sean, you've, you talked before when we talked about Persona 4 on the year-end podcast that what's so great about this game is that it f- covers such a wide swath of, of like, of issues, of yeah. psychological issues that you will find yourself in somewhere in here. Yeah. Naoto is where I found myself, and not because I, like, go out and feel like I'm a woman, <laughs> but, I mean, okay. I was I'm, kind of hoping this where you no, we were going to go. I'm a podcast to take a weird turn. I'm a white male American. I've kind of got it made. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm just saying it's like... You know, that's it's kind of that's yeah. not my issue. But I think where I see myself in Naoto is definitely mm. that idea of where your sort of estimation of where you should be in life or what you want to be is at odds with how the world views sort of who you are on the surface. Like, you know, I've been writing movie reviews and stuff like that and, and working for different publications since I was 10 years old. And I think I'm, I'm a very intelligent person and all these things. And I think it's tough sometimes when I always don't want people to view me as a kid. I've never liked telling people I'm in school or in college. It's something I'm insecure about. And I will honestly tell you, playing Persona 4 and going through the Naoto storyline was unbelievably therapeutic in that way. Because I don't know if I'd ever realized I did that until I saw the Naoto storyline. And I think that's something that I just, that's something that hit me so hard was that idea, again, of image and repressing things about yourself and trying to shy away from truths about the world because you don't want to confront them or you want to take an easier path to get where you want to be. And I think that's something that the Naoto character really sums up in really interesting ways. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's kind of why I have such a personal connection to that character. But then I also just think she is a fucking fantastic character, however you want to look at her, because... She's just, she's got such a great immediate personality of she is this genius, she's a very caring person, but she's also just very methodical. Once she comes onto the team, they're actually, the detective work becomes competent. And, yes, yeah. Fine. Yes, it was a copycat killing you fucking morons. Yes. So Naoto is just great in that way. She's got a really interesting design. I love the way she's drawn with the hat. It's a very, again, it's sort of this design that feels very kind of iconic in a way. Yeah. Where she just, she looks, she, she looks the part. She looks like a detective. And, um... I love the voice actress. I don't know the name of the I actress, can't her name but either. she's fantastic. Yeah, she's, she's really good. Yeah, and and just such a great voice to listen to. And just the writing for now oh, yeah. too that like they they really capture. She's got this like really large vocabulary. She's a very verbose person. Yeah, uh, they, 
it, I have to imagine this is a very difficult thing to translate it, but they, they translated that really well, and it's very, well. very consistent, her characterization. Yeah, so Naoto is my favorite character in the game. I also love, from a functional standpoint, once you're able to use her on your team, she's super fucking powerful and useful because she can do a lot of things really well. Like, you can't yeah. really nail down one thing she does well. She's not like, you know, Yukiko Healer, Chie Physical. She can be physical, she can deal almighty damage, she can do fire and wind, and she can do all of them really well, and I actually, until you get this one piece of equipment you can give her that cuts all her SP in yeah. half, um, she, she, you run out of SP with Naoto a lot because she can do so many things. So I always use her on my team. I use an all-girl team. Yeah, yeah, so. I, I did too for my golden run because the specific mechanical things they change in golden make her a lot more yeah. useful. But so anyway, what we're oh, she can also do light and dark damage. So yeah, she can yeah. really do just about everything. <laughs> yeah, she also gets heat riser, which is yeah. the most powerful buffing uh, skill in the game. Yeah. So yeah, no, she she is depending on how you load out her skills, she can fulfill like any number of three different roles. Yeah. So Nato's my favorite character. What uh, what do you think about Nato? I, I I really like Nato. I mean, I basically agree with everything you've said so far. I also really like she has one of my favorite social links in that they they have a lot of fun with the she's a detective thing. So it's like your social link with her is your she's getting all these like letters with these really cryptic hints and you have to if you actually get to help solve them, like you have to using your dialogue options to get to pick them. And that's, I think that's just a lot of fun to sort of go through. And then also yeah. sort of helping her come to realize it's like, it's like, I'm fine with like, I like being a woman. Like she is a woman. Like she like getting to the point where she like understands that about herself, that she was just yeah. using her image as a man to sort of try to avoid dealing with those issues. I think shame is another thing that comes yeah. into this where she gets to this point because of societal pressures where her womanhood becomes a, a shame kind of thing. She yeah. doesn't feel, that's kind of what I was talking about with, you know, I me not liking to, to publicize my age or that I'm in school or anything like that because there's this element of I feel start feeling shameful about it. Well, I shouldn't. Naoto yeah. shouldn't feel shameful in the slightest that she's a woman. And getting to that point where she no longer feels that is very, very emotionally rewarding. Yeah. In this game. So, yeah. She's also by far the most difficult character to romance. <laughs> yes. I, I ended up having to reload a save and losing like four or five hours of progress because I, I realized I had fucked up and made it so I couldn't romance her. But it was like, and my playthrough on this game was like the one where I decided like I was going to do absolutely everything. I 100% my uh, Persona Compendium. I got, I maxed out all the social links. Like I wanted this to be the... Round of applause. Yeah, I wanted this to be my putting like the nail on the coffin for this game for me. And so it's like I reloaded that save to like go down that path. I know for you it didn't work out for you either. And I thought I did everything right. I did everything you yeah, told me to do. Yeah, I told you the one that like for me that would trip me up is there's like a spot where you have to there's like three options like run away with Nauto, protect Nauto, or fight Nauto. And for me the one I fucked up on was that I didn't pick protect Nauto. I fit like fight for her or something. Yeah. It's like apparently she doesn't like that. Yeah. You gotta protect her. But I don't know what else. Hold a fucking knife on her. And I'm also, a, like, a walking god at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Isanagi! Yeah. Just, I'm just, just vaporize that dude. I, can su- I could literally summon Lucifer himself at that point. Yes. So anyway, <laughs> anything else to say about Naoto? No, I think she's a great character. I like, she just uses a fucking pistol as yeah. her weapon in the dungeon. That's really fun. It's, makes no sense because she's in Japan. No. There's no fucking way she'd have her hands on pistol when she's not, like... She's not a police officer. Yeah. She's a consulting detective. And a kid. Yeah. <laughs> you can just buy guns from the fucking metalwork shop. It's like, how the how are, you, how are you selling guns, dude? Like, what what is going on here? How, what have I gotten involved in? All right. So we will continue talking about the characters 
on the next episode, because yeah. we have almost reached two and a half hours. I think we can knock out the rest of this discussion in one more similar length episode, but we've got a lot yeah, more we characters. we might have to push into another one, because we've, we've still got the rest of the non-investigation team yeah. stuff to cover, and then all the mechanical stuff in the yes. game, and the music. Yeah. So. so anyway, we'll get to all that eventually, but you will basically, all these episodes will come out at once, so if you are a subscriber, or you're listening to this on, w, on We Got This Covered, just go to the next episode. We'll number them sequentially, but they will all be out the same day. You know, this Monday it normally comes out. That would be March uh, the 4th, March 4th. So we've got all the episodes out. So if you want to continue listening to our Persona discussion, move on to the next episode. We're splitting them up so, you know, your bandwidth doesn't die. Yeah. So anyway, we will see you soon. Beautiful.